Hello and welcome to the next episode of the podcast. A podcast for budding enthusiasts. This episode, as always, was brought to you by 420 Australia, your premier lifestyle and apparel store, as well as Organic Gardening Solutions, your one-stop shop for organic gardening needs. On this episode, we have the man Adam Dunn himself. It's been a long time in the making, and I hope everyone enjoys this one as much as I did. Here we go. Alrighty, so a big thank you and welcome to a man who needs a little introduction from this scene, the podfather himself, Adam Dunn. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you. So, first question we start everyone off with is, what was your first experience with cannabis? Oh, that's a good one, actually. Um, so, let's see, I've got to try to piece together the actual years. I was in fourth grade. Um, in California, I used to go to a school called Wonderland Elementary, like famous Wonderland murders all happened around there. Uh, very rich area. My mom was going out with uh, Robert Downey Sr. actually at the time, right? So uh, his sister, Robert Downey Jr.'s sister, is named Allison, and she was like basically my babysitter at the time. Um, and she was a terrible babysitter. Right? She, she had no, no feel for it. And her thing was to just, she thought it'd be fun to get me really blazed. And, you know, I kind of, I grew up around weed a lot, so I wasn't like unfamiliar, but at the same time, I kind of never ventured into that world. And uh, so she basically was smoking a joint and kind of like passing it to me. And I remember not thinking anything happened at all. Like I was just like, yeah, nothing happened. Right. And but then like about three or four days later when we were talking about it, I was told her, I said, yeah, I didn't feel anything. It didn't, it was, she's like, what did you think? And I was like, I don't know. I didn't really feel anything. And she was like, you didn't, if you saw yourself, I remember telling her telling me like how high I was, you know, <laughs> cause I was like super <laughs> hyperactive and running around crazy on it, but not crazy, crazy, obviously. But like, so it is kind of interesting because now as an adult, you know, a lot of people get really like mellowed out when they smoke, but I've always had that thing where I kind of got more hyped up from it in a sense, you know, so kind of felt like it was in my chemistry or something. But yeah, so it was, so it was basically Robert Downey Jr.'s sister, <laughs> which makes it kind of ironic these days because, you know, if you want to go on sort of drug royalty, right? Yeah. Wow. What an epic story. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was, so it was kind of a wacky one. And then, you know, later on, like when I was about 13, I really, uh, it was funny between uh, when I was 13, I quit smoking weed for about two years because I was totally into the military. I thought I was going to go into, like I was in civil air patrol and I was planning on going in the military. So between 11 and 13, I kind of like had a little, like a sesh there basically for a few years. Cause then after I smoked with her, I kind of would smoke every, you know, she'd give me hits here and there. And then I started to kind of get, get into it a little bit, but then I, I kind of had a twist at around 13. I was like, Nope, that's it. I'm quitting. I, like I went through a quitting period. I said, by the time I was 13, I was already quitting. It was kind of funny. I thought it was, and then I, and then I was started up again when I was about 15. So there was like a two year, <laughs> two year period there where I didn't smoke. Yeah. Okay. So there's a few questions there I'd love to ask. I mean, the first one, you kind of touched on it. Do you think there is any truth behind 
that whole idea of like people not getting high on their first time? Like, do you think it's just a case of not knowing how to inhale just, properly, or in case no? Like- I think it's just not recognizing is the key. I mean, I think that's the, you know, because what I always tell people is, you know, when they like, especially people who've never smoked weed before, and they have this sort of pre disposition to it like they're like a preconception where they're like oh it's you know it's going to make you lazy or it's going to make you hungry or it's going to make you this or that and then uh if you uh don't know what to expect actually cannabis is very mild as we know you know what i mean it's mild and yet intense and powerful in its own way too but the first couple times you do it so it's you're expecting fireworks you know it's not like an acid trip or something like that where you know okay <laughs> if you don't you know, if somebody who takes acid and they say, I didn't feel anything, then they have a completely different chemistry, let's say, you know what I mean? But with weed, because it's such a subtle thing, you're kind of like, oh, you know, maybe you just didn't notice it. And then the second or third time you do it, you really tune in on it, it seems like, you know. And and a lot of times I think it's your, what people see in you and what you, like, you know how it is when you think no one knows you're high kind of thing? And then the minute somebody sees your eyes are really red, oh, what are you high? And then that kind of like triggers it where now you feel high <laughs> because someone noticed that you were high. So I think that's probably the reason. Yeah, interesting. I think I think there could be some good truth in that one. If we just fast forward a moment to mm-hmm. when you first started growing, what was the situation like there? So, um, well, basically when I lived in uh, Rhode Island when I was about – uh, 16, uh, I had, I bought a Phototron actually. So I'm one of those guys and I bought two Phototrons out of high times and I was living with at my mom. I was living with my mom at the time and she, single mom. We had a house in Jamestown, Rhode Island. And I basically built a little room in my basement. And I remember like, kind of like built this room in the corner and I had zero carpentry skills at the time. So I kind of just slapped up some really makeshift little thing. And then I put these two phototrons in there and followed the instructions and realized that it was way too small for what I was trying to do. Like I put six plants in that tiny little thing and then cut them out. And I had, remember I had some Hawaiian seeds at my mom from some weed that my mom's and her friends were smoking at the time. I had some like Thai seeds and I had some, some other random Mexican or something. And it was just like, so there's some of them are just ridiculous. They took up, they grew so fast. And I remember they were, if, if you're not familiar with the phototron, the, the, the medium that they use is sphagnum moss. So it's very wet and there's no drainage at the bottom of those units. So literally when you turn on like six fluorescent lights in a little tiny box, and then you put a bunch of water at the bottom, it, it, it ends up, turning into like a vapor trap and so the whole thing was just dripping down the sides and and so i remember uh this is kind of funny too i woke up in the morning with my mom waking me up and she's like adam adam your plants are on fire right and i was like in a half asleep and i was like huh like just like what plants on fire and then it was like it hit me like oh my god my plants are on fire and i ran out of the house and ran downstairs and they were just like a melted blob of plastic (laughs) because the uh, the dripping of the water going down the sides it ended up into the bottom of the where the, the sockets basically were and shorted them out and ended up like literally almost burning you know could have burned my whole place down so it was like my first attempt at growing was a complete and utter failure and the phototron still to this day i mean they've sold so many of those units and it's like 
I, I was probably one of their first victims. You know what I mean? Like I was like, I was like that, that kid who ordered this thing online or not even online, ordered it in the magazine. And, uh, you know, when I got the box, I was like, can't be the unit. It's, this box is way too small. You know what I mean? And then it was like, I guess, I guess it is. And then I put it all together and it was smaller than I thought. And it was less robust than I thought, you know, but in the end, uh, it did get my fever sort of going. And the cool part was I put that little, I had put that little room together and then I realized, uh, that that was the way to grow. I put a light in the room and actually grow in the whole room, you know? And so that was kind of like the, the beginning of the fever for me. Okay. I think and that was in 1980. That was in 1985. Oh, wow. I, I, it's kind of interesting. The whole Phototron thing. It's almost like people look back on it with almost like this, uh, positive reminiscent view where they're kind of like oh yeah the phototron i got done by that too right well that guy julian d demarco the guy who owned that company he i talked to him many times because when he when i first ordered that phototron i think i was probably wave maybe two or three because I, I mean i'm sure it's been a few years out but it hadn't it was still the original hand drawing of it it was like there was no photos and it was like they the way that the photo of it looked it looked like like so much more action was going on. And then when you actually got it and you turned it on, you're like, wait a minute, there's no air moving through this thing. And there was so many things that needed to be addressed, you know what I mean? But at the end, it, it, the one thing I can say is that it did at least get me excited. You know what I mean? I, I think the only thing he taught me was probably inner nodes. Cause that was his whole thing. His whole thing was about inner nodes. Like literally he was focused so much on that, like internodal length. And then, how many internodes and and it was like okay but there's more to a plant than internodes you know what i mean and uh yeah it was a it was an interesting time uh i also the the two phototrons that i had one was mine and one was my friends and i think i'm not sure which one actually melted but it basically they melted together into a big blob and so we ended up uh getting two more replacements and we didn't want them i told him i just want my money back <laughs> but he ended up sending me two replacements, which I ended up trading for a snowboard at the time. And so it was, it was like one of those, like, you know, those classic moments. I don't know what ever happened to those other units. So. Yeah, cool. So one of the most asked questions I've received to, you know, shoot your way is essentially, what's the backstory on the bubble gum? How did you get it? So, you know, in this context, how did, how did we go from that first grow to you having the bubble gum? Okay, so uh, when I lived in Amsterdam in 89, 90, um, I had a friend uh, who came through, uh, and basically I was working at the Hash Museum at the time. I just started working at the Hash Museum in 1990, I guess it was. And so I'm standing there one day, and this guy walks in, and I grew up a little bit in, in Rhode Island when I was, that's where the Photoshop thing went down, when my grandmother was, it's kind of where my grandmother's from. So I, from New York originally, but then later on when I was living with my grandmother, I, I kind of got a lot of friends around there and I kind of forced my mom to, to move there at that time. And, uh, so I was very familiar with that Rhode Island accent and that Rhode Island sort of mentality. And this guy walks in and he's like, I'm like, where are you from? And he's like, Oh, I'm from Rhode Island, you know? And I'm like, Oh, right. I'm from Rhode Island too. And something about Rhode Island, which is like, it was, it was like a, I don't know. It's, I always think of it as a place to get in trouble. You know what I mean? Like it's just because I grew up there, so it was like it was always like that was like the, the worst place to to for weed. Like it always had this, and so I was like, "Oh, you're from Rhode Island," and I kind of just 
I don't know. It was weird. Like I felt like I had to protect him from getting in trouble or something. And I was like, yeah, what? he's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, yeah, he came here to learn how to grow weed. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's cool. I, I got to, I'm just trying to put together a grow. And he was a contractor from Rhode Island. So he's really good with building. And, and we basically took this apartment. Hey, he came over to my apartment. I let him stay there with me. And we built this grow room together and I just designed it. And basically all I had to do is make coffee and he would build it for me. Like I literally, he would, he was one of those guys who was kind of, uh, like difficult to work with because he wouldn't let you do anything, you know, like he'd be like, all right, give me that. Except for like, maybe hand me a tool or do this or do that. But for the most part, it was like, I remember I would leave, I just like leave him with a bunch of materials in the room and I'd go and make coffees and come back and he'd be like, lifting up a thing by by himself and you know just kind of one of those dudes like, all around kind of uh, construction kind of guys but he didn't really know much about growing weed so uh he brought seeds from rhode island with him and it was actually called chewing gum it wasn't called bubble gum it was called chewing gum and it was because so he was getting these seed he basically he was getting weed off of a guy who was from illinois and the guy and the funny the funny part about that whole story was over the years, like I had always thought he said Indiana, right? So I was, so I put the word out like that. I got these from Indiana, from a guy from Indiana. And then later when this whole Indiana bubblegum thing came out, it's a little bit of a, so for me, it's a little bit of a mystery because I know I met guys from Indiana who had a variety called bubblegum. When I called it bubblegum, it was only, we changed the name from chewing gum to bubblegum because we didn't think like it just didn't have a good sound to it. It's like chewing gum is something that ends up on the bottom of your shoe. Bubble gum is this is what you put in your mouth. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like right. chewing gum is just kind of because the reason he called it chewing gum was the fact that he would he had a bar um, called the Church House Inn in Providence, and he would stick a bud underneath the bar and literally just see what people's reactions would be because he'd be standing there, and then people come in and go, "Whoa, what's that, dude? You smell that?" And he'd be like, "No, I don't know what you're talking about." And then he'd kind of feel them out, you know what I mean? And if he thought they were cool, he would hook them up. <laughs> and it was just literally like his little trick that he played. And when I so he had 135 seeds that he had collected over a couple year period, and basically this guy that was selling him the weed, occasionally he would have seeds, so he either got a I think it's either a Hermie or something, but basically the guy was also super like protective of those seeds. Like if you got one, he'd give you 10 bucks back on the next, like if you brought him like five seeds from your bud, he'd give you 50 bucks off your next ounce. You know what I mean? He was that protective. He's like, just bring them back. I need them all. And so my friend was like, no, Victor was like, nah, I never gave him anything back. I always kept them. So he came over, brought those seeds and him and I basically, we didn't grow those seeds for a good year. Like we, we were growing everything else. Like I worked for Sensi at the time. So I was bringing home seeds from Sensi and I was trying clones and I figured I'm in Amsterdam. This is the land of plenty. What can I, what could I, you know, can't bring sand to the beach. Right. So, <laughs> so then I, uh, after a year when like at one point Victor was working on another room and he was for somebody else and he, uh, was biting down on a, PVC on like a uh, irrigation line like he's trying to pull one out with his teeth basically and he broke a tooth and he didn't we have no insurance because we're americans living in holland and he's victor's about 10 years older than me so i guess at the time he was probably about 40 and uh or maybe a little younger 30s late 30s or whatever and uh so he basically had no health insurance and but he was like but he did back home so he flew back home to take care of his teeth and while he was gone i'd sprouted a bunch of seeds so i 
sprouted the most of them. I think in the beginning we had 135 seeds, and I I selected out of about I think it was around 60, 65 in the beginning when I went through, and I had narrowed those 65 down to seven, and the seven were classified by size. Um, so basically, A being the smallest, and uh, so A, B, C, D, E, F, G, up to G, let's say. And um, I also had a male selected at the time too. And only on my second round, so I took that. I did. I crossed. Uh, I did some inbreeding on that first generation. So I made some seed, uh, but unfortunately, then my room got broken into. Uh, all my mother plants got killed uh, and stole and my clones got stolen. So I had my clones got stolen. My plant, my mother plants got killed and they literally t- took the door and pulled it right off the hinges. Like they, they lifted the door off the hinges and uh, just so my door was just standing there next to my place. Nothing in my house was gone or met, like taken just literally like they went in, went straight to my room uh, they took my light bulbs. It was really weird. Took my light bulbs and took, my fucking ph meter so i was like my ph meter my light bulbs my clones and my mother plants and my mother plants were cut and the clones were gone and so and the clone and the the mother plants were cut and taken like they put them in a bag and took them so crazy part was at the end of all of that i went through everything and i found so the uh the c so uh, the middle, right in the middle, the, the number three or C, depending on how you remember, I classified them, but, uh, the middle. So it was like not the smallest plant, not the biggest plant somewhere in between. So in a way they kind of like, at least out of all the things they did, cause actually this, the biggest plant wasn't as potent as the smallest, like the, and it literally was like the smaller ones seemed to be more potent. Um, and so I narrowed it down to just that one plant and then I got really paranoid as you would be if somebody just stole all your shit and all your work. And so then I took the, the, that bubble gum and I gave a clone of that. So basically I revegged the plant cause it was like the lowest branch was not cut. It was cut, but it was just like, there was still a little nub left. So then I revegged that plant, uh, gave a cut to Tony from Saga Mother Seeds and I gave a cut to uh, Simon from Sirius Seeds because we all worked together at the time at, at Sensi. And so if you look at the, so if you look back in the kind of the history of all these, these people, the bubbleberry from Tony was the direct first round when, from what I gave him that bubble gum. And then if you look at Simon from Sirius Seeds, he has, which it kind of like to me was a little bit of a, this was a little bit of a confusion for everybody was that, and then Simon continued selling bubblegum seeds, but his were sativa dominant and mine were more indica dominant. And there's a, there's been a few like back to back grows that people have done. Like there's a German magazine, I think they did one, one time and you can really see pretty obviously that where we have some shared genetics in there, but definitely different directions you know so like one goes in one direction one goes in another direction um but but that whole thing was like a complete kind of it was like the introduction to me to the whole industry and it really showed me like how when you have something because i basically what the, the problem i had was i wasn't sharing it with anybody because i was a little bit nervous about that in the very beginning because i worked for sensi and i saw how things can go wrong you know <laughs> in the in the cannabis world and so when i 
figured out I had something that was special because everybody was like, Ooh, this bubble gum, man, this is, this is different, you know? And really to me, it wasn't that different. It was actually like real good American weed. Cause I had that real thick, deep kind of, uh, deep lingering Afghan kind of quality compared to a lot of the fruity stuff that they had in Europe and in Holland. And so to me, it was just like, yeah, this just smells like America. You know what I mean? I'm just smelling good old American weed, strong. And then, uh, but it was so unique to the Dutch market. And then that's kind of obviously where, uh, you know, it turned people against me in the sense of breaking into my place and really showed me like the, the lengths that people will go through if they can't have it, you know? And that's, that's kind of what a lot of the genetics are nowadays is if people can't have it, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll figure out a way, you know? So I think you kind of alluded to it. Do you think that that whole break-in was more of like a very specifically targeted thing as opposed oh, yeah. to like a general break-in? Oh, 100%. 100%. It was like, you know, and that's the thing is like I was – one of the things I've – probably over the years, I, because out of all the breeders, I think I'm one of the more open books because I've always had a shop, you know, at a retail store. Um, at that time I didn't, I'd have one, but I, I was working at a retail store. So here I am working at Sensi Seeds, you know, everybody knows kind of who I am. And at that point in time, you know, the thing is that Amsterdam has a real underbelly to it, which you don't realize when you first get there. A lot of times people get there and they're like, wow, this place is beautiful and so quaint and nice. And it's like, yeah, it's also run by, you know, gangsters and people who really are, pretty deep in and you know when when there's a huge market of illegal drugs being sold then there's always going to be that side going on you know and it, it's so and cannabis whether you know people think it's legal or not is it's not when you're talking about wholesale and when you're talking about how you know people uh view it when it comes to like importing large amounts of hash or weed or anything so you're definitely dealing with some unsavory characters at that point yeah okay Abroad, so I'm, I'm sorry. Go so ahead. I'm 100. So I'm 100 sure it was based on the fact that I didn't allow cuts to go out because people were people were asking me. You know, there was like, I'll give you five thousand for a cut. And like, no. And once people offered me that much money, I knew there was a reason. You know, what I mean, it's like, no, I don't think I want to give this out. You know, and so it didn't didn't like I said, it didn't take long. You know, it took maybe six months before that happened, and. uh then what happened for me, which is a bit of a problem, is I thought I was going to be smart and not sell seeds and or give out cuts, obviously. And then that was the way I was going to figure out who stole my stuff. But in the meantime, Simon sold seeds and Tony sold the bubble berry. And, you know, people started to put on almost any menu you went into in Amsterdam, somebody would have bubble gum on the menu and I'd go and check it out. And I'd be like, that is not, that's not it. You know what I mean? So it was one of those first indicators of how the name game gets flipped and if you got something that's popular it's going to get either stolen and or just renamed to your you know the work that you've done so and i also find it ironic that the whole indiana bubblegum thing because what was funny was over the years so in the beginning for over 20 years i basically said that i that came from indiana then only like five years ago my my friend who actually gave me those seeds told me he's like no it wasn't indiana it was illinois and i'm like oh illinois so i don't know if by me putting out so then when i put out the so now what's funny is that people will kind of always want to work around you you know what i mean so when people 
uh, talk to me about bubble gum, they go, oh, no, no, no. I got the original. I got the Indiana bubble gum. And I'm like, okay, well, that's got nothing to do with mine, actually. Because when, I, when I've grown the Indiana bubble gum, and it's very, it's a good yielder and everything, but it's definitely a completely different animal, you know. Yeah, okay, interesting. And so a broad characterization we've heard recently, in my opinion, is that the scene kind of started in America in the earliest days, moved to Amsterdam mm-hmm. during the period in mm-hmm. which we're kind of discussing, and then shifted back mm-hmm. to America. Would you broadly yeah. agree with that? And I mean, if so, you kind of appeared to have followed the trend as it moved, you know? Was that something you intentionally yeah. did? Um, not at all, and, and that's what's been... I mean, yeah, this last time, yes, but not the... Obviously, I had nothing. I had nothing to do with the first wave, but definitely, and I, I can't say I had anything to do with the second wave. But I, I saw the second wave coming, and I, I basically timed it, this one perfect. And I felt like for the first time in my life, I've actually ahead of the game. You know what I mean? But yeah, when in, I 100% agree with that idea. And the thing is that it wasn't. It wasn't. There was no real scene to speak of, except for the underground scene, and you know, like people on tour with the dead or whatever there there in cali there was a scene because there was um you know harvest parties and stuff like that and the first the cannabis cup was inspired by the harvest parties in california so so yes in that sense the when you think of the industry and when you think of the the cannabis scene i always i always compare it to even though I'm I'm hardly a surfer, but I'm like I always say like I'm I'm literally like how a surfer is so dedicated they'll fly all around the world just to catch waves. I'm kind of in the same way on a cannabis wave on a long term sort of sesh. You know what I mean? Like my idea was like Amsterdam was the big waves of the '90s. You know what I mean? And now it's like a puddle compared to America. You know, America's got literally gargantuan waves now you know because in the beginning like in, when i first moved to amsterdam uh you know the thing about there is there's a lot of small gardens maybe 10 lighters you know are your are your considered decent sized gardens and those are 10 600 watt lights um most people are like four to six lights and little tiny apartments with very low amperage um and then you you but there was big gardens there that never very hard to do in america and now it's completely reversed you know like you like in holland you won't find any greenhouses anymore hardly because most of those are all being you know checked and it's kind of like now how we were in a totally different world too where you can google earth anything and count the plants in people's backyards you know what i mean like but the idea of growing gorilla growing is pretty 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 lost to this day you know i think this is the last year california is going to be able to get away with what they've been doing for the last 50 years you know yeah like by that you mean having you know a few extra numbers well yeah what they're doing now is they're like uh yesterday on the show i had um kevin jodry from wonderland nursery and he was explaining to me how they basically have been using uh you know like real-time google earth which is what the police have compared to what we have which is last year's google earth um and they basically have been doing two week interval checks so they look at a place they take a photo of every they they basically scan everywhere so they scan all the all the farms and then they look at a two-week interval and they can see how much biomass is basically being grown on each place you know what i mean because they can set their they can set the uh the photos to like look just at the foliage that's there and they can basically see like sit there and they can count numbers and they can also just because they know that there's uh 
almost 9,000 farms illegal, like illegal farms in Cal, in NorCal that are registered with their address, you know, because at a certain moment in time, everybody goes under the radar, you know, and they, they don't bust you right out of the gate. They wait until it's the perfect opportunity. And so this whole year, what they did now is they just sent out letters. I think he said 10 days ago, they basically were like cease and desist letters. So everybody's getting these letters and have to make major decisions. So there's going to be a lot of farms shut down this year. And a lot of people are going to realize that can no longer do the, you know, 2000 pounds in your backyard. It's just not happening. So, so yeah, it's going to be a big shakeup in the cannabis world just because of, mostly because of legalization, you know, that's just the way it is. Okay. And so if we just jump back to the Dutch scene for a moment quickly, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. a sentiment I've heard a fair bit is that even beyond, say, some of the legal changes, which may have, you know, been a bit of a catalyst for you to leave, some people express the idea that there's almost a bit of a, a need for a change in the community because I've heard a lot of people s- express that it, it's a bit stagnant over there regardless. Would you agree mm-hmm. with that? And I guess the flip side of that idea is that that's not the case in the USA. It's the Well, the thing is that when I, when I lived in Holland, what I realized was, you know, our customer base was Americans coming to Holland to experience freedom. You know, that was our, that was our literal customer base. We did not sell seeds to Dutch people. I did not, I sold a few seeds to English, a few seeds to French, a few seeds to Italians, but no Dutch, no hard, like zero packs to Dutch people. And, and so the scene there was always foreigners who were coming over here, who were coming over to there to, to, to experience freedom. And now America's in that, in that, zone and the thing is it's going state by state you know what i mean so what's happening here is like already states like colorado that have been doing this you know started in 2009 legalized in 2012 have now got all that under their belt it's gotten to the point where now people here have the same exact sentiment as they do with what you're saying about in holland where everyone's like yeah it's kind of dead in the scene it's still here they're still and, and everything has improved as far as like the shops that were just a little hole in the wall have now upgraded. And the same thing happened in Amsterdam. Like if you go there now, the shops are nicer than they've ever been, you know, because that's been always a big complaint about Holland is like you get there and you're like, oh, man, this place is so small and inconvenient and there's no air conditioning in the summer and it's cold. And, you know, there's like there's all those little things. And everybody's so like back in America, we would have this. And now they have a chance to do all this and they're not even they're a lot of times dropping the ball even on that. Like the biggest problem with Colorado is they don't have a social scene, you know, figured out properly. And if you look at other places that haven't got the rules yet, they have a better social scene because there's no rules. So it's really like legalization kind of destroys that, that, uh, sort of exciting side, you know, and that's what happened in Holland earlier because, Holland's never been legal. It's always been tolerated, but only the only people that were really interested in it was the uh, was the foreigners. It was like the, the Dutch are not involved in their own scene. So like that's the that's the reason why it's so dead over there is that they're not they're not really into it. You know, it's really weird. Like as far as they've had this golden goose in their hand the whole time, and then they just kind of forgot about it and didn't didn't uh, didn't act on it properly. And now here is kind of similar, but it's more of a legal framework where the le- more legal it gets and the more stiff and difficult. You know, the, the problem with Colorado is we're not allowed to have any kind of 
activities that are cannabis related. Like you can't have an event and say, come to this cannabis event because the minute you do that, you're under the scrutiny of the the man. And then the problem is you can't get any sponsors that have any legal things going on because they'll lose, they'll lose out because they'll say, they'll come to them and say, Oh, you can't sponsor this event. You're a registered dispensary. You know, and I was like, really? So a dispensary can't read, can't like sponsor a cannabis event. That makes no sense. You know what I mean? And, and that's kind of a, that's a bit, I think that's a bit of the problem. It's just kind of, we're coming out of the underground market where, you know, the first time you go to a party and it's all cool and relaxed, it's because there's no rules probably, you know, and then that's, that's the, the thing that kind of kills it. And so like with all that being said, was that part of the motivation for you to start the ADI? Um, yeah, you know, the, the whole idea of, uh, of doing my own event like that was, was based on the, the, type of listeners that we had on the show and the sort of the core people that were involved were a lot of breeders. And, and so I kind of, what I wanted to do was not create another event that was based on a million categories and and trying to make it so that we were, you know, everybody wins. It's like more like, nah, you know what? Kind of going back to that old mentality of, of how you go, we know, say you go to a party and you got good weed in your pocket you're going to you're going to show it to anybody and everybody and smoke everybody out just to prove that you've got the best weed right and that's kind of like stoner 101 right <laughs> that's the first thing you learn like okay i'm going to be the guy who has the best weed now the minute someone else has better weed than you you sort of slip that weed back in your pocket quietly and usually <laughs> skulk away skulk away and go home you know what i mean like literally i've got situations where i didn't have good weed on me and i didn't even want to go to a party i'm like you know what i can't it can't be me i can't go hey oh i got this so in a way like stoners and i always tell her it's like if you want to know who the big stoner in a group's going to be it's going to be the kid who loved show and tell you know what i mean like when he went to school oh it's show and tell day i'm going to bring that medal from my dad from the war and tell the whole story or whatever it's that kid because he always wants to have the cool thing and be the more you know the 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 coolest thing in the room or something and i think that's kind of where the most simple way of putting it but i think that's kind of like a classic stoner the way you figure out who they are perfect so i mean if we just take a bit of a step back from the adi what (laughs) initially inspired you to start the adam dunn show um well actually that came out of uh when i first came to colorado uh 2009 2010 uh john doe radio who's tim martin he was he's been doing the show for a few years and he basically i didn't you know i was never much of a podcaster i didn't even understand what podcasts were back in the day i was kind of like well podcast like whatever people listen to those you know i wasn't never wasn't even focusing on it but uh he invited me on a show and I came on the show and it was like, you know, one of his best shows as far as here I was just talking away. And, you know, I didn't realize that people forgot that people might be interested in that, you know. And uh, so I ended up going back on his show three or four or five times. And uh, there was a moment when his show kind of peaked out because he had his own little issues going on mostly with alcohol and stuff. And he was like getting drunk on the show and getting all pissy with his, with his people and like you know, complaining about his, his, uh, his, the uh, sponsors on his own show. You know, I was like, ah, you can't do that. Right. So basically I was th- realizing that he, he, like he actually got taken off the air on the air, like, <laughs> like live on the air getting <laughs> taken out by the police 
because he had broken into the studio and got all drunk and locked himself in there, you know? So it was one of those crazy stories. So basically I saw this like, like, and I, and I was kind of bummed because I'd liked going on his show. And then I told them like, Hey, you know what? I'll do a, a Wednesday show. Cause that was his slot it was a Wednesday slot. And I was like, I'll, I'll take over your Wednesday slot and just do something. So I did a show called CD Wednesdays. And, uh, I figured my original concept was like, well, you know, I can just pull out my, my phone and just call my random breeder friends and we can just rap, you know what I mean? Cause then it's like, it's, you know, straight to the source was the idea. And, uh, so I did a few of those shows and with zero format and just kind of was winging it, had, had some people listening to it. Um, and kind of realized that it's, you know, for me, I always had a store and I was always talking to people and I was always educating and trying to like help people out. And so I kind of feel like this is an extension of that. In a way. And, uh, so it felt real comfortable and really felt really easy. So it's one of those things where I just kind of stuck with it. And then at a certain point I realized that I may want to just throw my name onto it to help kind of people know what the show is about because it keeps it really open. Because one of the things like when I meet somebody, they're always like, so what do you do? You know? And I'm, it's a hard answer. It's a hard thing to answer because yes, I breed and I make seeds, but I also have a clothing company and I also have always had, usually have a glass gallery and I have, you know, they have a lot, lot going on. So it's really hard to pinpoint it to one thing. So that, that's where the, the concept of just calling it the Adam Dunn show came in. Cause I was like, you know what, this could go into any direction. So let's, let's just leave it at that, you know? And, it's been it's been really good. It's been one of those things where it's it's good to have an outlet, you know, and it's also good to to uh, stay sort of relevant. That's one of the things I realized in this industry. It's quick. You can quickly become irrelevant if you have no if you're not really putting the energy into it. And I always think you got to, you know, especially in a group situation, someone's got to take the initiative. And I'm, I feel like this is just another step. And what's funny is I'm sure you've noticed it too, where like being a dj a few years ago maybe 10 years ago if you were a dj it's sort of like okay you know now everybody's a dj or so-called dj but but like same thing with podcasts it's like right now i feel good <laughs> that i actually did it when i did it because now it feels like everybody wants to do a podcast and you know i i, I i'm definitely everybody should try but it is kind of hard to to uh keep it rolling if you try to stick to only one subject yeah, I can definitely agree on that. And the thing I also get asked a lot is people will message me and say, oh, yeah, I want to start a podcast, but they won't know what it's going to be about. They'll be like, what should it be about? And it's like, I don't know, man. It's got to be organic. Like, you got to do it about something that you're passionate about. Oh, yeah, you, know you, about, you, you can't stuff. tell someone to do a podcast about because then otherwise you would have already done it, right? If, that's, <laughs> if, you have the, if you have the greatest idea for a podcast, but it's not what your subject that you're involved in, it's going to be pretty hard to even manifest that one, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, you kind of touched on it, but do you, did you ever envision the Adam Dunn show to be like of a specific format or did you really honestly just think, I just want it to be free flowing, whatever comes from it comes from Well, you know, well, you can actually, if you follow the guy, if you follow it and you see like, you know, one of the things that, that made the show sort of more popular and, and it's a shame that it's not still rolling was that I had Mitch, had Mitch Janasa on board for a good year or so and a year plus and he really helped me format it a little better in the sense of he brought a little more structure to it. Um, it's one of the things that I've noticed is that like, like for instance, I mean, we all listen. Now I listen to, you know, not a lot of podcasts, but I listen to a few, like everybody, I listen to Joe Rogan and, and I think 
he's it's funny because I watched it in the beginning I could tell that he was very similar to me where kind of like a lot of he likes a lot of subjects he's a little all over the place he also you know he has his guy that helps him out and then he really is winging it half the time and that's kind of where I I always felt like I'm much better when I'm doing that than when I get a little bit too much structure in front of me so um but by having Mitch on the show, he kind of helped me a little bit. We had like time slots and, you know, he had it all figured and mapped it out. Um, but I feel like it's, uh, it's, there's an evolution to it. And I, I know there's going to be another wave because at a certain point I've had, a, I've had a lot of people approach me about doing other stuff. And I'm kind of like, Ooh, I don't know. It's hard if I going to work for somebody because I've never had that for the last 25 years or so i haven't i've always been the boss you know and then so that's a really hard uh like someone asking me to do what they want me to do and i'm gonna i'm gonna always say no at this point because i uh i just don't know if i could do that so it's, yeah it's totally out of my element creative freedom right yeah you know and it it is like my favorite my favorite shows to put out are the ones that i don't I come out of there feeling like, wow, I didn't even know half the things that, like, it's just, I learned so much on my own show, you know, and that's, that's a pretty cool feeling. Like, there's times when I, I'm like, well, if I learned something, then I can only imagine that the people who listen to it must have been blown away even more because they're really not knowing the both sides of it. Yeah. So I think a question I'd love to ask, a lot of people were kind of wondering, you know, why did Mitch take a step back? I One thing I had heard was that he's actually not so heavily involved in the cannabis scene in general anymore. Is that true? Um, no, he works for Dark Horse Genetics now. So he's still in the cannabis world. I think, you know, the difference is that uh, Mitch was a straight edge guy back in the day. You know, he was literally the guy who would go not I'm not going to say he would go and beat people up, but he was like literally part of the crew who would cruise around and be like hating on people who are taking drugs. You know what I mean? So he literally turned his thing around 180 when he got into weed. Whereas, you know, I've never been that guy. I've always been a weed guy. So there was a little less of a like long term, like I have to be a weed guy for the rest of my life. And the thing is, he actually quit smoking weed for a short time. He didn't quit completely, but he, he quit when he when he quit the show. He quit smoking weed at that time. He had a point in his life where he felt that he needed to uh, center himself and take care of his family. That's really what I mean. And Mitch is Mitch is. Uh, like it's like 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 we were talking about earlier when it came to the, putting the show together and you know he had it all pre-planned and typed up and ready to go. So when he sees that, you know, it's because for him, it, not to say that it was about money at all, but he really couldn't put the energy into driving down from Boulder to be on the show to then not get paid enough. And when we really struggled when it came to sponsors and keeping people on point and and paying their bills and you know I'm sure you've <laughs> seen that side of it all and it's one of the hardest I mean, the thing about podcasting is it's, it's very hard because you could sell out and go to sponsors that have nothing to do with you and make more money but we really only wanted to work with products that we like and you know things that we really could stand behind because it's you know very easy when you use something and you like it to tell to be enthusiastic about it and then people you know believe you obviously because you're like hey I've been you know been using this thing for two years it's awesome and then Compared to like, oh, yeah, and 
if you want to get the MailChimp, contact MailChimp. You know, that's kind of where <laughs> it's it, it, it's uh, it's hard as a podcast person. So he, so I think with with Mitch, it's it's a little bit of a. Uh, he's also very much uh, moves on with his things and keeps rolling. Uh, I'm I'm the kind of guy who really has a hard time letting go and giving up. I'm terrible about it. Like sometimes, even when it's not productive, I'll just keep rolling with something because I feel like. Nope, I said I was going to do it. I'm going to do it till the end. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so I think we just have different different personalities like that. But you know, we're still in contact. Everything's cool. It's not like there's never there was never an issue. It was always just a, I think a change in his his uh, direction. But I've also told him. I said, listen, if we ever get like a real deal, you know, that actually is somebody paying us to do what we're doing and not us having to figure it all out for ourselves, then I'll, I'd love to have him back, and hopefully he will. You know. He was yeah. a great. I mean, that's that's the thing is when Mitch was with me, I really like I could let him run the ship for a bit, and I would just be able to throw in my two cents, which would be always the the goofier, stupid side of everything. So I didn't have to take myself too seriously. Now all of a sudden, I feel like well, I can't just be the goofy guy. You know what I mean? I got to actually buckle down every so often and 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 try to get to the bottom of certain things. You know, with with people, with guests and stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, I can I can totally relate to that. Sometimes I feel like. I'm focusing um, so hard on what people are saying so that I can maybe come up with a follow-up question that I'll often I listen back to the interview and just be like, yeah, I don't remember them saying that. Like, you know what I mean? Yes, like exactly. No, I have that all the time where I, I sometimes I have it where I'm in the middle and I'm thinking of the next question and I totally blanked out on what they just said. And I'm like, oh, no, like, where where were we actually? <laughs> so, yeah, I know I understand 100%. So, on the topic of the show, who's been your kind of your favorite guest over the years? Um, well, you know, uh, I love having I like having passionate people on, like the guy that I had on yesterday, Kevin Jodry from Wonderland, and I really love I love for some reason I love talking to guys from New England, like uh, Ron Wallace from the Giant Pumpkin guy that I've had on the show a few times, and he's now a sponsor of the show. He's one of my favorite guys to talk to just because he's such a knowledgeable guy when it comes to soil science. Um, he's like, uh, he, and he takes it so seriously and, and he's creating world record, you know, pumpkins out of this, out of the situation too. So he's been one of my favorite guests, um, non-cannabis, like I would have to say, um, Let's see who has been really cool. I think actually like DJ Short's really cool to have on the show because he's also coming from the heart and he's a he's he's a real uh, you know like a lot of times when it comes to, I think a lot a lot of it comes to like experiences too. One and the um, Dragonfly Earth Medicine are also great people to have on the show because there's two of them as the you know husband and wife team and super knowledgeable and are sticking by their guns you know what i mean and that's kind of what i like i like people that are have been doing something and they got they can relay to the listener stuff they can do that can not only save them a ton of money but also make them healthier and and, and give them a give them a, a an avenue to be able to to take care of themselves uh, that's that's kind of my that's, i feel like what i feel like the service of the show is to is to give people uh, options outside of the i'm just going to sit here and hype up some brands for you because they paid me to do that you know that's kind of that's what a lot of the podcasts i've noticed have been you know yeah when it comes to growing when it comes to growing because there's so much money to be made in in in, in 
products, you know, and so people are always looking for a- ways to promote their products, and which is fine, and I'm totally down with it. But it has to be for what I said earlier. It has to be stuff that I'm backing because I like it. Yeah. Okay. And so one question I thought that you'd be the perfect person to answer is, who's someone who you think has maybe not due to their own fault, but, you know, just kind of flown under the radar over the years who you think should get some more credit maybe as a breeder or any facet of the community, I guess. Hmm, good question. Um, see, over the years, myself, <laughs> no, I don't know. But, uh, uh, you know, it's been one of those, I think that one thing you notice in this industry is that uh, people that, that, you know, do it for, do it for the long, like do it for the long haul. I got to think about this question. This is a tough one. Um, hmm. <laughs> I think a lot of people is the opposite. I think a lot of people got way too much credit in this industry where you're like, Hey, oh if you want to throw some names out. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to, I don't need, I, I don't need to, I don't need to throw, throw shade at anybody. But, uh, the, you know, the, the thing I've, I mean, one of the people that think that a lot of our people are forgetting um, is Ben Dronker's my old boss, which, uh, I mean, he he stuck his neck out when when it was like, you know, if you think about a guy like him who made it possible for so many people to to start their own businesses. I mean, that's the one thing of, with Ben, if, if you're not, I mean, he's literally like, he's the Don, you know what I mean? He is truly the Don. Now he's not that he's never been celebrated by people. He has. And, and a lot of times it's, it's, it's people trying to get something out of him. But, but I really feel like that guy took more risks in this industry than almost anybody. He was arrested like 30 times or something like that. And, and, and you know, he's, he's had balls of steel. He's taken, you know, one of the greatest stories I heard of him, my greatest, I use a lot of them, but one of the stories I heard from him that was just shows you the kind of guy he was, is there was a guy who, um, came to the, to the, uh, hash museum at one point and he was a he was from uruguay and he was a friend of another person who was like showing him around uh in europe and they had their wallets stolen or their bags or something like that and so his passport was stolen he had no money and uh he uh so i guess ben had given him ten thousand guilders which is about five thousand dollars at the time so that he could get him get home to uruguay because it was really expensive for tickets and take care of himself and everything and then that guy turned out to be the president of Uruguay, the recent one, the guy, the, the really cool president they have. Uh, wow. And, you know, just to show you the kind of like, you know, someone throws you 10,000 bucks, you're going to remember them forever, you know. And so I'm sure Ben has some extra special credit down in Uruguay now. But just like he was just that kind of a guy, you know what I mean? And and uh, over the years, so many people, including myself, have like started underneath him saw the light like wait a minute you can sell seeds and people will pay for them oh my gosh and it's something you love this is great so he kind of like showed everybody what to do and you know since he was the the birth of serious seeds the birth of soccer mother seeds the birth of th seeds the birth of uh so many other ones after that too and like you know just if you and now of course uh you know, he lives in Malaysia and he's got his own island. So this guy's doing pretty good. I don't think he has to, anybody has to worry about him not doing good, but he definitely, I think is because we're getting to that point now where America's taken over. Uh, people think of ge- Dutch genetics as being like not an inferior for some reason. And I'm like, ah, you know, they were the gatekeepers of all genetics for so long. 
and they did a huge service to the world because if they didn't do that, if they didn't step up to the plate in the eighties, we would have lost it all. You know what I mean? Because there's so much, uh, that got at least had a home in Amsterdam, you know, and then could get filtered out of there and get sent back to America. So, so I, I think he's, he's probably the, the biggest influence influencer that's, gets the least amount of credit these days, you know? And what would you say to people who claim that the uh, downfall in quality from Sensi is kind of on his shoulders? Um, no, it's, um, I mean, it, it, I know exactly when it went downhill because <laughs> it was, uh, it happened right when I was there. So basically in 1993, uh, right about the time when I moved to, so 92, between 92 and 93, they, they bought out, um, they bought, uh, Neville's entire collection, right? So Neville was, uh, trapped and he had to get take, he had to get smuggled out of back from, he was in Australia. Uh, and so when they did that, they basically bought his entire collection so that, you know, to, to finance him, got him back to Amsterdam and, about a year after that, maybe two years after that, that's when they, so Marcel, who was the main grower at the time, I don't know who's, who's growing for, for Sensi right now, but there's a guy named Marcel and he was the main grower. And this is where the Dutch lost the plot a long time ago is that very few of them smoke pure weed. They almost all smoke tobacco. And I figured that out when I first got there, I was like, wow. And that seems like none of these Dutch people really know anything about weed. Like they all just kind of, oh, it smokes, it's good. You know what I mean? And I was like, nah, but don't you notice that this one has a much better flavor? You know, I was always like trying to figure out the nuances and, and it's because I didn't put tobacco in my weed. And I realized quickly like, wow, I could, you know, I could, you could rise to the, rise to the top of this industry really fast. Just, just based on the fact that you're really into what you're doing, you know what I mean? And that you, you understand the, the medium that you're in. And so Marcel, who didn't smoke was the main grower. He took over all of Neville's work and he had no clue of what he was doing and he did not follow instructions properly and that, that things got haywire, you know? So then Neville had to come back in and clean it all up. So that was kind of the, the original mistake. And then I believe, you know, it's pretty hard to maintain a library for 30 plus years and not expect there to be some deviation from, from quality. And then on top of that, you take into effect that, you know, I think the other problem that they had was, Dutch are very arrogant people. They can't help it. It's just in their blood. <laughs> That's just the way they are. You know what I mean? So they have a hard time uh, taking a taking criticism and b believing that they're in the wrong in any way, shape, or form. So when it comes to like breeding and stuff, I believe that they may not reach out enough. You know what I mean? To to get people to keep them in line because they feel like they know what they're doing. So. Yeah. I think that arrogance is maybe what came through a little bit. And that's the thing in Holland now, they're desperate for, for American genetics that are fresh, you know, and everybody's looking for something new. Like if you go there now, every shop owner is like, Oh, Adam, 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 we want the best of the best. Can you get it? You know, and I'm like, no, you know, I mean, it's like those days are over for like, you guys can figure it out yourself. But <laughs> I think that's just the way it is, is that people are, uh, they always thought they had the best weed there. And 
what I always noticed when I was working, like anybody who came into my store, I had the same discussion over and over and over again. Like anybody from California or from anywhere that was like cannabis, like had a good cannabis culture already was like, Hey, I came to Amsterdam. I haven't smoked any good weed, you know, and I have to like bust out something and be like, we'll try this. And oh, okay, well you, you're the only one, you know, or something like that. And I'd be like, no, no, there's good weed here. You just have to know where it is. And again, very similar to what happens in America now, and it will happen in, in, in Australia, and it will happen anywhere that it becomes legal or, or fully accepted because when any, whenever there's qual- quantities, the qualities are going to go down, you know? just just And there's going to be so much out there that you're going to have to filter through to get to the good weed. Uh, yeah. My first shop was called CIA, and that stood for cannabis in Amsterdam. And then I broke up with my original partner and decided to change the name of the company at that point to KGB. So we like, we're like, all right, we're not, we're not CIA anymore. Now we're KGB. And, uh, that meant, but that was an acronym for no good bud in Amsterdam. And, you know, it was obviously tongue in cheek. Cause it was one of those things where, what do you mean? There's no good weed in Amsterdam. And I was like, no, 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 we know good weed in Amsterdam. I was like, oh, okay. And it's the same, you know, sort of the same now in Colorado, people come here and they're like, oh, there's no good weed in here. And it's like, there is good weed here. The problem is most of the stuff that's in the dispensaries has to go be touched seven or eight times before it actually gets into you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the, the handling is what fucks it all up. And it always adds. Yeah, wow. So many things we could talk about. I think the one which piques my interest the most, can we go back to the early days at Greenhouse where you, Arian, and Shanti were working together? What was that like? You know, what's your opinion of those guys as breeders per se? Like, you know, put aside the personal stuff, you think they're pretty good breeders? Shanti's a good breeder for sure. I mean, Arian, Arian is a real, Arian is the epitome of what I just said, which was the Dutch are so arrogant that they don't know what there's out there because they're, they're so convinced that what they have is the best and they're the best. And so therefore they're the best, you know, and you're like, okay. But, uh, you know, he, and he was kind of more silver spoon kind of guy. Didn't have it as difficult as, I mean, Shanti was, was taking big risks and growing in, in, in Africa and places that were much more intense um, totally respected him when we, when we met and, uh, I didn't really do much work with them. I kind of like, I, I, you know, I, we were all in our own camps. I, I uh, I, uh, it's funny cause my friend ran Arian's, uh, clone operation for him, you know, at one point. And, uh, you know, I'd go by his house and shake my head. <laughs> like, what are you doing working for this guy? You know what I mean? You're like, working for the enemy now. This doesn't make any sense. Cause we were all in our own, in our own camps <laughs> at that time. But, you know, and, and there's, you know, as much as people think we have bad blood between breeders and stuff, it's like, for me, it was a different thing. We both were shop owners. We both had our seed companies and my little pet peeves with Arian were, were more, my biggest pet peeve with him was, was the fact that what I, I, I felt like we were getting kind of slapped in the face just because we were foreigners, because we came there in 93 or I started my first company and I got there in 89, but we first started the first company in, in 93 and about 94 i believe arian came into our shop we already knew each other because I, I used to hang i knew him from sensi and stuff so it wasn't like we didn't know each other but he walked in with a group of people and they were like looking around at all anything that i had that was seed related they wanted it so they grabbed all my catalogs from all the different companies that i was repping and then they on the way out said by the way guys you can just forget about making seeds because i'm about to flood the market and make them not make them so you'll never be able to keep up you know what i mean and i was like okay 
And then he came out with his seed company within maybe what, like three, four months after that. And the right away, I was like, wait a minute, why does it say since 1985 on the top of this thing? Because we're in 1994 and this just started today. <laughs> you know what I mean? So this doesn't even make sense. And, and then, uh, he literally said, you know, and I, I confronted him on it the first time I could, I was like, Hey, what's up with this since 1985 stuff? Because I'm pretty sure you did not exist when I got here. You know, I, when I met you, you did not even have a shop at that time. And so, and his story to me was that, well, you know, I was watering plants for my dad in 1985. I had 2000 plants I had to water every day. And I was like, that is it should say the and and this is the funny part is he always would bust Shanti Baba's balls and call him the water boy, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I was like, and so I was like, hey, wait a minute, aren't you just a I should say water boy since 1985, right? And he got so <laughs> pissed off. Yeah, so that was like you know that was that was my little pet peeve, and it's nothing personal. It's just I, I feel like you need to be honest about some things, and when it comes to like your starting date, that's that's kind of basic, right? You know, it's like if you're you're going to tell people that you're breeding since '85, but you're actually talking about watering plants since '85, well, that's like I could say I was growing a phototron in '85, but I would never, you know, I'm not going to include that into my my date of my starting point of TH seeds. So that was my little pet peeve with him, and then of course it was just the 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 idea that you know like everybody says you you know you buy cups well you don't really buy cups but you do buy cups it's a different way of buying cups it's just when you in if you rent the, if you rent the hall that the cup is in and you supply the hotel rooms for the people and you do all of that well you're gonna win a cup you know what i mean so that's kind of what his angle was it was just more of the the obvious way it wasn't there was never like a here's ten thousand dollars give me a cup it's pretty much yeah let me buy you $10,000 worth of stuff. And so I was always felt like kind of like a high school thing where, you know, stoners versus the jocks. That was when I was a kid. That was the way we, we, our mentality was. And here we are in the cannabis world. And I'm still felt like I was back into that high school feeling. And I was like, wait a minute. So now I'm back on that, but shouldn't the stoners be in charge of the stoner thing? <laughs> but again, we were kind of like back on that, uh, classification or something yeah that's um that's an interesting one i think i think there might even be a, a written article out there kind of talking about what you mentioned and the way arian has obtained a few cups over the years by interesting means but something i did want to yeah. ask you is sadly you know franco is no longer with us what do mm -hmm. you think that means in regards to their output of new strains well, you know, I mean, the thing is, they they uh, definitely lost a good guy because he was he he's what kind of grounded them with cannabis again. Because at least you had somebody who, you know, smoked a lot of weed, smoked a lot of hash, had a very um, was very into it, and and a hundred percent kind of you know, because that's what you. I mean, that's the thing about anything. Like the only passion dude out of yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and all you know, out of like out of the whole crew, you know, it's like uh, he was definitely the one that kind of connected with people better, and uh, you know, I really think it's it's a sad. It was sad because the the timing, of course, is I mean, the thing about you know, it's never there's never a good time, of course, but it's also like just as this whole industry is about to explode, you know, uh, to to lose somebody like to to lose out on that, it sucks because you don't get to see you know, a lot of things. I'm sure you wanted to see. Um, but you know, I think they'll, they'll, you know, they, the thing about them is that a lot of times there's not a lot, there's was never enough vetting with a lot of their strains. You know, there's a lot of times when 
something was hot. I remember when Trainwreck was a good example where guy brought Trainwreck to, to Amsterdam. He gave me a cut of it. And when he after he gave me a cut, he said, Ari, I just offered him like 10,000 guilders for the same or euros for the same cut. And I was like, do what you got to do, man. You know, like if you want to sell it to him, go ahead. But it kind of sucked because I thought we had this deal. Like you were going to bring it to me and we we're going to work together and we we're going to make some something from it, you know. Um, and so in the end, I know he didn't give him the train wreck. He gave him something else and called, took, called it train wreck, you know. And Arian ran with that ball so hard and uh, kind of put his own foot in his own mouth when it came to the whole thing because he – Everything he described about it didn't make any sense. You know what I mean? He was talking about fat leaves and sweet plants and, and just all these things that were like, mm, no, that doesn't sound like train wreck. You know, if, if he had said silvery colored leaves and thinner and short and fast and kind of a, you know, mentholated something smell, then he would have been like, yeah, that's the train wreck. You know what I mean? So he kind of like, there wasn't, there was always this thing of like, if I just, pay somebody a bunch of money they're going to give me the real deal and i'm never going to have to you know and i'm and i'll be and i'll be the guy you know and i was always like it, it helps a lot if you're if you're involved and you actually know what train wreck was before you put it out there <laughs> so in the way like he really kind of like fucked himself up there where even describing the seeds didn't make sense because if you've bred with train wreck you realize it always produces small seeds just the way it is doesn't matter what you do like if you're i mean maybe if you crossed it with certain mail you might get bigger seeds but what i've noticed is always when i was making seeds of it it always came out quite small and dark and so he was explaining them as these gigantic and luscious seeds and so as a breeder you're like wow that doesn't sound like green like again you know so there was i feel like that's that's you know something they can learn to maybe do to improve their selection but a lot of the, I mean, a lot of companies are gonna. A lot of companies just don't care at a certain point, though, too, because their numbers are just so high. You know? So while we're on the topic of selection, what are some of your preferred methods for selecting a good male? You know, do you have like a go-to trait? Like a lot of people say, you know, they love the stem rub. Good stem rubs are really good indication to them. What are some of the things yeah. you use? Um, I mean, the the late flowering males that have, uh, I mean, obviously smell is important. That's your first thing. First thing would be smell. That's how you kind of like even decide to think about it. Um, after that, it's a lot of visual cues. Um, later flowering ones are better that they, they don't put, they don't finish out too quick. Um, the, uh, trike development is also important. Um, the, uh, the uh like bulletproofness you know and also what i look for is like a rubbery quality to them like sometimes you get like papery plants and sometimes you get rubbery plants is kind of how i would judge them and the papery ones tend to produce more harsh and not such nice plants that burn kind of weird and the ones that are more rubbery tend to be more like they burn slower and oilier and they have a vibe to them so usually go for like a male that has a kind of a rubbery quality to it um, resilient, uh, late flowering trikes help usually. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you know what else is, uh, I mean, I haven't done it too much. I've, but the, uh, you can, some, if you take, if you do like a colloidal silver treatment and kind of try to flip them to get an idea of what they might be like as a female um haven't done that a lot though that that's a more recent development which i've done in a few rounds just because it was like oh well shit i don't really do feminized normally but 
it is a good way to test the uh, to test the sort of the ability of the plant to to resist hermaphrodism in general. You know, so like if a plant is easily flipped where it just instantly goes, then it's almost like a bad sign. You know, it's like a that shows you that it doesn't take much to to convert that plant into to make that plant go hermy on you. And that's as a male. I mean, that's the thing is with males, it's really about numbers though too. Like a lot of people, they bank too much on one particular male. And unless you know and it's been tried and true, it's actually better to uh, sort of uh, hit up a hit up like one female with say three or four males, maybe even five males, and uh, keep your numbers small on your original round, and then go through all of those because. People think a lot of times, especially when it comes to males too, it's like, you know, they're really, really focusing on the females and then they're like, oh, okay, but I got one male and then they're going to use that on everything. And it's like, there's a lot to, it's 50% of the information, you know what I mean? So if you're, if you're not a hundred percent sure that that male is a stable one, you're kind of shooting in the dark at that point. Yeah. Okay. That's actually a really interesting idea. I haven't heard before, but it certainly makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, the thing is, it's a, a lot like, you know, if you like, I heard, um, I heard that like the Cookie Fam is trying to find a male, and they've gone through like fifteen hundred males to try to. They're still not happy with anything, and that's it's kind of the way you have to be. You know what I mean? You really have to be super duper uh, skeptical when it comes to males. And the problem is, a lot of times people like the, the key is to flower them out completely uh, before you select them, and that's really hard for a lot of people to do because they usually are are trying to use the original time that they flower it, like the very beginning of the flowering to use that in a breeding project. And usually what I'll do is keep my males completely separate, have a whole room full of males and let them go really till the end, till they're like withering almost. And then you can kind of get to the point where you can really see the bud structure of them. And then you can collect plenty of pollen to do a small run, you know, um, and then that way, the pollen that you're collecting is not the original. Because the problem is, in the very, very first flowers to go off, is not as is not the best pollen. You know, the, that pollen is is usually not quite matured enough, and it's kind of like a pre-flower thing. And so I usually wait until they're really like dumping, dumping, dumping. And then I'll collect a little bit of pollen from those, and then use that on my first round. That's and then once I know, though, if it's a different story, if I know that, like, if it's a, a male that's tried and true, I'll put the plant in the room to make seeds. I don't brush those. Like, if I'm doing production, I let the plants just do their thing. Way better results than trying to do it by hand, you know. But if I'm going to do a test run, like, when I'm trying to figure out a male, I'll do all those by hand because it's it's stupid to try to make 10,000 seeds just to figure out that they're not good. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, well, that's a big waste of energy. So... That's kind of the the idea from the way we do it. Yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, that, that's another interesting idea with the the immature pollen. I haven't heard that one either. But one I want to kind of look into myself. The question I want to ask, though, when you do do your pollinations, do you put mm-hmm. the male and the female in the room together from day one, or do you like to stagger? No, I stagger it usually. Um, it depends though. Like if it's a normal like eight or nine weeker, then I'll stagger it by about a week. If it's um, like a 10 or a 12 weeker, then I'll stagger it by about two and a half, three weeks. Um, and, but then, you know, what I'd usually do is uh, like 
there's there's certain plants though that I know that I just after I've done it a few times I'll be like you know what almost do the opposite I'll have to flower the male before because if I wait to if I try to put them in the room at the same time they'll end up uh, coming in late po- pollinating late and then you end up with a lot less mature you end up with like a whole bunch of those half those seeds with the flat bottoms and, and white seeds <laughs> and, and, and you know it's just driving nuts so in a way I'd I'd tell I'd rather it be on early than late. Like I hate it when the when they get pollinated and they've already hitting on like say four or five weeks. There's just not enough time. You need you need a good six solid weeks to produce seeds. You know what I mean? That's that's how I feel. Like if it's less than six weeks, I feel like I'm, I'm undercooking them. You know? Yeah, for sure. And so on the James Bean interview, he referenced uh-huh. that you might be doing. A uh, little project in the future whereby you're releasing some pollen in combination with a few different crosses. Is that something that's still going to go ahead? It is, but not as quickly as I thought. I actually um, that I had a, I, I had a, my one of my one of my projects get sort of stifled in the middle of it. Uh, I lost a I lost a particular place. To, just like we do <laughs> to the man himself. Cause I, a lot of my breeding projects, all my breeding projects are underground still, you know what I mean? Because I don't trust any, I can't do it in a facility because of the protocols are so extreme that it's just, how am I going to get, you know, I can't even work with my material because all of a sudden every little gram of the material, whether it be seed or stem or whatever is all being organized and classified. So, so I do everything still on the underground, which puts me at risk and, Unfortunately, the that particular project, which is called Everybody Loves Bodie, and I, I took some Bodie. Bodie had given me um, a tester of something that he hadn't released yet, which was uh, called Jasmine Cat Piss. It was a, a snow lotus hybrid, um, and I got a really consistent batch. Like everything on it was just like the males and the females looked almost identical. Um, so I took two males. I only, I only had 12 plants to begin with uh, or 12 seeds to begin with. And out of those 12 seeds, I got like nine plants, I believe. And then from those two good males and then the rest, a couple of males that were a little bit wonky, but, uh, ended up with this one male short, fat trichae for, you know, really decent little plant. Um, and that male, I managed to keep the male. I was lucky because even though I lost the, the place, uh, because it's Colorado, they, they let they, they let you, they left thirty six of the smallest clones. Basically, they they took everything else. So they, uh, but kind of, it's always funny because when you're like compared to what it used to be back in the day, they take everything, right? Take all your lights, take all your plants, take everything. This time it was like they took all your plants, but they said, oh, you have a you have a uh, you have a medical record, you have a medical card for thirty six, so we'll leave you with thirty six, but we're going to leave you with the smallest thirty six, and luckily one of those was the male that I was going to use for the pollen, my mate, but I, but there's not enough time for, for this particular round. So, um, yes, the idea on the everybody loves Bodhi project was to do, um, a sort of open-ended breeding project. And then that way, whoever, I was going to do a short amount of, like I said, maybe, maybe uh, 30 of these. And then the idea would be, you have, uh, a bunch of F1s, a, a few less, but a bunch of F2s and a couple F3s. And then the pollen that I used on the original F1 crosses. Um, so that way you could, 
take that project and go backwards with it a little bit and go, you know, the idea would be as breeders, you buy it, you have all these seeds to go through and you have the original pollen off the mail that I use so that you can always go and use do your own back crosses. Um, I thought it'd be fun because I wanted to, because Bodie's way of growing or way of breeding is a little bit, um, I wouldn't say it's different, but he definitely kind of does that on, on his own. He has this, he does everything to F2 and then he leaves it at that. And then you as a grower at, get kind of like you're, to me, it's sort of like you're in the middle, you know what I mean? You're not quite there. You need to go like F1s are a little bit more explosive. F2s are a little bit more, uh, you start to get into like camps. A, you know, you have the, the two different, you'll, you'll have more phenotypical experience. You have less phenotypical expression as you would in the F1, but you'll have groups, you know, that are more defined. So I yeah. kind of just thought, it, so it's kind of like a different way of looking at it. And the idea was that you'd have to buy the whole thing. You know what I mean? You buy, so you, you buy the, uh, a couple hundred seeds at one given time. So you have these projects that are, then I wanted to, I mostly wanted to do it to see what direction people would take them, you know, uh, that way and and then tell everybody these are all you can use all this stuff do whatever you want with it i'm not going to not trying to isolate it and tell anybody you can't use it and because also it was from Bodhi. and then i wanted to give 25% of that to the charity of Bodhi's choice which he chose a group from oaxaca uh, there's a place down in oaxaca which uh, he would hand deliver the the check so we're going to do it but i'm probably going to do it next year cuz it's one of those things where you can't can't release that kind of a project without feeling like it's uh, it's where it's supposed to be. Yeah, and do you see this as being a common thing in the future? Because we have seen a few little pollen releases here and there. Is this again you oh, getting yeah. on board the next wave? I well, you know, I think it's definitely going to happen because the reality is um, that is that, like when I do a whenever I have a question and answer thing at a seminar or something. That's one of the main questions is selecting males. And because we've all shared all these common female plants over the years, very, very few breeders share males. And if they do, it gets usually it's like, so for instance, like a good example is the G13 Hayes male that Soma uses on a lot of his crosses. He gave that, same male to DNA who then used it in a bunch of their crosses who then gave it to paradise seeds who used it in their crosses who gave it to you know everybody like every uh, uh, Delta 9 used that same male in a bunch of their crosses you know it's just like kind of like and so for me that was like completely off limits I was like I will never use that male because then we're all you know we're all in the same boat whereas the females no problem everybody can use the same female but as long as there's a different male in the, in the mix it would kind of puts everybody in their own direction so I think that's been kind of the main reason why everybody hasn't been doing it because they kind of want to keep their, their thing unique but I also see that people are willing to pay because you know half a gram of pollen is, is plenty you, you can do a lot of damage with that so you know the market will dictate where it goes and i just think there hasn't been enough breeders out there to make it worth it but nowadays since everybody's a breeder just like everybody was a dj you know it's like, it's like and everybody's a podcaster i just happen to be all three right um but yeah it's like it's kind of the uh it is kind of uh inevitable that that's going to become another Baseball. I think you know who else is doing that was um, DJ Short's son. I think was doing that. J- JD. Yeah, 
Yeah, something I was interested in though is I've been thinking about this idea a lot and obviously not quite entirely related to the pollen idea because probably a lot of more new breeders, so to speak, aspiring breeders going to be people interested in that. As for like top-end breeders already selling seeds, they're probably Mm -hmm. less likely to be buying that pollen. But Mm -hmm. the question remains, you know, given you just highlighted how males from other people do get used do you think it's it's a bit of a stretch to call yourself a breeder in that situation? Because I think fundamentally, when you break it down, being a breeder means there's some form of selection involved. So if you were mm-hmm. just to use a male from someone else, you didn't select it, mm-hmm. and then like a clone yeah. only, like where's the selection taking place? Yeah, no, I mean, and again, that, that you're a replicator at that point. That's what I used to. That that was my other little joke I used to do with Arian. I was like, Arian, you're not a breeder. You're a replicator, you know, because that's all you're doing is replicating other work that other people have done. Um, but I, I kind of feel like that is, uh, yeah, that's a different classification. That's it, it, it. Again, it's it's like the um, it's like the meme where I forget exactly how it goes, but it was like you know, I need two like the guy that was under the car and the yeah. meme, and he's like, I need I need two packs of this and like whatever and stickers and and I've done less, you know, I've made a seed company out of less. That's kind of where we're at, where. You know, and that's one of the things where you notice uh, you see people's gears turning when they're when the, the first time they're understanding like that people are paying money for these beans, and oh well, if they're paying that much money, then I should do this. You know, and, and that that's definitely not the inspiration that you need. You need the inspiration should be, you know, you you want to uh, you love the plant enough that you can uh, take the energy to to waste a bunch of time and, and and to get to a point and that's that's it's never on the first round you know what i mean that's like that's one of the reasons also why this whole everyone loves bodhi project i'm like okay i'm not i'm not as content yet with where i'm at you know i want to take it to the next level what i am going to do though is uh, a line called sage master select which is the the bigger picture um i'll have my first round of uh of things coming on the uh at the emerald cup so I'll have oh, six awesome. crosses. I'll have six crosses. I have a male, uh, sage male that I, that we selected here from, uh, that's like a green onion. It's got like a green onion flavor to it, uh, that it imparts on everything, which is really nice. And it's kind of a, it's kind of like somewhere between garlic bud and an onion flavor, which, uh, is a little, a little bit different than the original sage, which has more of a sandalwoody vibe, but, uh, it's amazingly vigorous, uh, and I've just did six crosses. Well, I've done, but I did a bunch more. But I got six that I've selected out that I'm gonna or on that I'm gonna bring into uh, the Amber Cup this year. Yeah, awesome. So one question that we got sent in a lot was, and one I kind of looked into and was interested in myself. On the THC site, it says um, that you guys have won a few cups with the underdog Kush. How does that yeah. one differ from Lumpa's underdog? Is it is it different? It's different. It's different. Yeah, um, yeah. John and I had the, we, we we as a moment in time a classic where you know we we didn't know each other, but I kept hearing from people like yeah, Lumpa's mad because you you know the underdog thing, and I was like oh okay. That was actually uh, because I I had a, okay here it's it's a weird it's a it's a it's a it's a weird one too. Cause so basically, I got underdog from uh, from JJ and. AJ about nine years ago and I got it with I got Guava Chem Underdog Corey Haim Cut and so it's two different Star Dogs this regular Star Dog and the Corey Haim Cut and Lumpa 
I think Lumpus is is like a sour Kush cross more. Uh, and it, so he, and he named his underdog Kush. And then the problem was that, okay, so ours was just the underdog. And then my partner, Doug in Amsterdam, he, he basically put Kush behind anything that had OG in it or Kush because the customer base in Holland, like they just all that, that was the hype word of the year, you know, Kush, if it doesn't have Kush, we don't want it. So, because when he called it underdog, people didn't get it, you know? Uh, yeah. So it was really like a name put on it to, for selling points more than, and not just because it, but it had Kush in it, but it just was, or it, it didn't even have Kush in it. It was underdog, which that's, and that's the funny part about the whole, when I first got Kush and I first got Sour, which was in about 99, uh, I brought him back from, from, from the States and I brought it to Amsterdam. And when I got there, I had wrapped them, I'd put them into groups and I'd wrap them with, uh, one of those, uh, garbage bag things, you know, little zip ties. Yep. And, uh, I'd wrapped them into two groups and then I wrote on them and just, you know, how, you know, how small that area is. I'd like wrote with a permanent marker, like, OG on one and then SD on the other one. And when I got there, I couldn't fucking read them. <laughs> I could not read. I was like, oh, what? The, oh, I don't know which ones are which, but I'll figure it out. And then I grew them out and they're damn close. You know what I mean? When you don't really know what's going on, like you have no idea, I had zero. And the funny part was that our, uh, that Soma had completely fucked up my head when it came to the to the diesels because he had came up with his diesel, which was purple and grapefruit smelling and just had nothing to do with sour diesel and so i'd only heard about sour diesel even though my friends who were the ones who were growing it back in the states that i'd met when i was in amsterdam they never brought it with them they were always scared to fly into amsterdam with weed you know um and so until 99 until i actually went and got the cuts i didn't ever try it so i flew back i got the cuts flew back grew them out and it took me like a good two runs before I was 100% convinced, like, this is sour diesel. That is a kush. Um, now I can see the difference, obviously. And now it's like totally like I, now I see when other people don't see the difference. But um, the whole underdog story got a little bit confusing, too, because there was um, – uh, you know, there was like that version that he had he put out and then – I guess those guys lost like AJ and JJ and everybody lost that original one. And so when I put out, then when I finally got JJ to look at the underdog that I had, he claimed it was the Corey Haim cut. So now it got really confusing. I was like, wait a minute. I had the Corey Haim cut and I had this star dog and I had the guava. So I'm like, God. so it got a little confusing. So it was one of those. Yeah. I think that to this, I mean, I know that they're totally different plants, but people will be confused for eons to come. <laughs> I will never get yeah. that. Will never get totally separated. I don't think just because I'm them losing the original underdog, and then Lumpa having his version of underdog, and then TH Seeds Europe, which I kind of have to separate because I'm not involved directly with what they're doing. I'll send them. I will send them stuff and. Uh, they can work with it every so often, but I'm not like on the inner workings of a lot of the things. And like, for instance, that underdog is the same 
cut that I left them with, so I know what I left them with. And yeah, but but to this day, I, yeah, now it's just hard for me to know because until I can get them to get me that back over to here and be able to show that to AJ or JJ and AJ and have them confirm whether or not it is or it isn't. But, you know, I think also there's a little bit of the hoping I don't have it. <laughs> you know what I mean? A little bit, yeah. a little bit. Like, I hope he doesn't really have it still. Whatever it is, the thing we have was really, really good. And that's why he keeps winning out in Europe and stuff also. Yeah. So, I mean, there's certainly been some whispers that, the clone which goes around is the you know original sour is maybe not the original what's your thoughts on this one um well you know interestingly enough next week i'll be hanging out with the bro and i'm trying to get the bro to come on my show and the bro is really like the key to the whole sour story because he was one of the financiers of the of the whole project back in the day because it was literally um you know, a bunch of guys who are kids, really, when you think about it. Um, and then my friend, who is the bro, who is kind of like guiding them, you know, and helping them uh, with this, with that project. And basically by paying overpriced amounts to them at all times, just to keep it <laughs> in-house, you know. Um, they still have the cut of off the original, which they're getting analyzed now so that we'll have a baseline the cut that I have came from, from uh, Hal, who's the guy that worked for them, or kind of, he's the guy who popped the bean, the original bean. Um, and when it comes to the sours, like for instance, that AJ's put out, I think it's different, you know, um, it's, it might be an F1, but it's definitely not exactly the same. Um, yeah, I think for the most part, most people haven't seen it lately. You know, if they haven't been, if they weren't in New York in the '90s, uh, to the you know late '90s to the 2000s, early 2000s, then they probably have seen a version which is not the original. I'm, I'm more than convinced. Yeah, that's a, a sentiment I've heard expressed commonly. A question yeah. I did want to run by But it's also you. hard, oh, but sorry. it's also hard because of the fact that the sour was never a stable plant to begin with, you know. Stability was never its its highlight, it was never its focus. So like the fact that it would throw nanners and uh be very hard to breed with and get a lot of kind of had a bunch of batches that of seeds that were, you know, very low germ rates, things like that. Uh so I don't think sour's ever been one of the the most stable cornerstone plants to work with, and it you know it came as a mistake, so it's part of the deal you know whenever you're uh working with material that came from from mis- from a great mystery in the sky then you you know there's it's hard to to decide whether or not that's going to be the longest or not even decide it's hard to to rely on that as being a super stable thing long term yeah. So I got a question, and, and about, I think there's a little yeah. fantasy. I think there's a little fantasy too when it comes to sour diesel, though. As far as like when you're 17 years old and you're at a concert in New York and you're super blazed and you smoke something and it's the best thing you've ever smoked, and now you're in your 40s and you smoked a ton of weed in between that, you may take you may in your mind have a little bit more. Uh, you may think of that as being a little bit more of a amazing thing than it really was or <laughs> different than it really was you know yeah fully so 
a question I did want to run by in relation to mm-hmm. one of the industry heavyweights that you made, the MK Ultra. So mm-hmm. when I, when mm-hmm. I first heard that Canatonic was you know had MK Ultra in it, I was a little bit surprised because when you look at the overall cross, it just doesn't really seem to jump out on paper. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen it, but since then, the guys who made it have come out and said, like, oh, no, we got the genetics wrong. It's actually these other things. Did, yep. you, did you kind of suspect that from the start, or were you kind of... Yeah, like, I, was, oh. I was a little... Yeah, yeah no. I, I mean, part of me was like, great. This is awesome. I can't believe it. But then a part of me was like, well, I just don't see how. I, yeah, no, 100% agree on that, because I, I... The thing is, when it first came out, okay, so Resin Seeds, which was um, the the... Son-in-law of Soma, uh, Alex, and Alex is like notorious for for flipping names and doing crazy stuff like that. So I wasn't. So I already was a little little concerned when he first told me that that's what they used because also I felt like he uh, he knew that if if he said it was something of mine, that it would be uh, it, well, if, like he. He could he could say that would make me excited, for instance, which I was at the beginning. I was like, wow. We actually had meetings with Bayer, you know, over it and stuff. It was like one of those, like, we're going to, like, all of a sudden it was like, wow, this could be the next big thing, right? Um, but part of me knew, like, out of the gate that it was like having a kid, you know what I mean? It's like when you have a, if you have a kid and it's not your kid, part of you will accept that it's your kid just because, you get into it, you go into that drive, you know what I mean? Your body, Oh, that's it. This is my kid. You're going to deny it in your mind. If you accept it, you know what I mean? If you don't want a kid, you may never accept it, but it's a sort of the same idea where this is, you know, somebody tells you that your plant produced something that is now being considered by Bayer pharmaceuticals because of the fact that they're looking for the next big CBD project or something. You're like, Whoa, this is major news. But it also, when we, when we went to that meeting, I, totally was like i would never work for Bayer. i would never ever want to work with any kind of large pharmaceutical corporation this is horrible you know so <laughs> kind of part of me is happy that it's not involved just because it's not yeah i wouldn't say i wouldn't say i'm happy that but I, it is kind of like people whoever whatever genetics it's responsible for need to be clearly you know get the get the reputation for it because it is going to send a lot of people on the wrong direction if they're going to buy mk ultra seeds hoping to find the next canatonic mother plant you know what i mean they're going to be probably mistaken you know so i mean while we're on the topic of cbd plants and kind of breeding programs uh-huh. if you if you were to do some cbd you know offerings what would they be in regards to the cbd to thc chemotype because a lot of people think that that's kind of where the real magic lies you know in that ratio yeah i mean really like so in nature if you leak so if you have a field of ten thousand or a hundred thousand plants and you let them just crossbreed and open pollinate um if you had say for instance you had a lot of high cbd plants in that in that field and you had a lot of high thc plants in that field and you let them go a couple of years in a row and they continuously uh crossbred open pollination like that you will naturally end up with a pretty much a one-to-one ratio and i kind of feel like that is the the most homeostasic sort of part of the like that is literally the balance right there the perfect balance um and everything else is adjustments on that scale so some patients might need a two-to-one or they might need a ten-to-one you know maybe but usually most of the magic happens in a one-to-one and that's just 
that just seems like it should be that way anyway because of the fact that you're like okay well that makes sense because uh we're talking about uh, entourage effect and the fact that they need it's like very hard when it comes to like what percentage do they need so like if you and it's very rare too very few conditions are super negatively affected by having an equal ratio sometimes not working as effectively but for the most part it's almost most people are thinking cbd is like this cure-all and they're both equally they're both thc and cbd both equally are, are effective thc being more effective than most it's funny too because in the beginning everybody thought thc was the the godsend sort of miracle thing and then in then all of a sudden CBD is, and now THC is bad. <laughs> and you're like, no, it's all pretty good. And then on top of that, you get the combo where it's like, when when they're both there is when it all works, you know? So yeah, I'm pretty sure one-to-one is your magic. And that's like Harlequin's a great one-to-one plant. Um, and that one is like, if you make anything with that plant and you give it to a patient, it almost always works. Yeah, okay. And so... What are your opinions on phylos and the way it's kind of interacting or should I say um, altering the way kind of certain interactions or crosses are going down between breeders? Like, for example, maybe you would do a certain cross in your mind, but then the phylos reveals that, you know, one of the parents isn't really what you thought it was. Maybe it's no longer Mm -hmm. an ideal cross, you know. How do you think all that Mm -hmm. plays into the scene? Net positive? I've heard some people who are a little bit against the whole phylos thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm... 100% 100% positive on the fact that it's just good that we can have this knowledge. I think you just can't take anything. You, you, you also got to look beyond the numbers. And that's where I get scared when people are breeders and they're like totally only working off phylos. It's like, okay, but uh, take into effect that, you know, sour diesel was a mistake. Kush was a mistake. They were all mistakes. You know what I mean? And they were all never bred on purpose for anything. And whether or not they, the numbers would have made sense is, you know, that's like, who knows? But, uh, yeah, I think you gotta like be happy that we actually can create. I mean, I do like the fact that they created the galaxy. There's a few things in there that I'm a little bit like, Hmm, okay, well that doesn't seem to make any sense, but it also opens up, a lot of things where you're like, well, yeah, we knew that all along. And now at least this is making this so we know that's for sure. Um, my problem with Philos, I guess I wouldn't say I have a problem because I've been on the show a bunch of times. I love them, you know, but the, what I can see is a problem with people is, is the intention everybody's a bit nervous about, which is like, okay, so what are you going to do with all this info? And that's kind of where it's a little, we're in a weird zone now because we've been so anti, um, writing things down as growers and breeders, you know, it has been like, yeah, just keep it all in my head, you know, because you don't really need to have something written down that says you were growing in that facility five years ago, you know, or something like that. But so we've always been a little bit more underground, keep it in your head kind of thing. And now everybody's like information junkies. And I feel like you can, you can overload it to the point where you don't have that information irrelevant at a certain point because you're like, it doesn't matter if it still tastes like shit, right? So it's like if you take these two plants, put them together, and get the perfect balance of all the cannabinoids that you were looking for, but it tastes like ass, right? Then what's the point? So I think it's a good thing. Tools are great. Just use them wisely, you know? 
And would you kind of express the same sentiment for labs and in all, you know, like the, it's not so new anymore, but being able to, you know, test the sex of seedlings and whatnot. Is that the type of yeah. thing you would look into as a breeder or are you still more so just like, you know. I don't know, much more hands-on. I mean, I'm still much more hands-on and I'll, I'll use test results more or less if I feel like uh, uh, I need to confirm something more than anything. And nowadays, I mean, it's it's if you have access, like if you can have a, a GC in your in your facility and be able to hand off samples to somebody who that's what they do all day and they love to do it because Lord knows I don't. But if you can do that and and give somebody else the opportunity to help you sort of move forward, yeah, that's like it's a good thing. But um, when it comes to like. Like, you know, I have guys who they run through all their stuff. They'll do a thousand plants and they'll just look for the one or two percent that have super high terp out of the gate and then focus on that. And it, if you're if you need to do that, yeah, like if, you, if you're trying to go through some large numbers, but also kind of feel like, you know, can't like the whole never judge a book by its cover. And if you have seeds and you go through them all, there'll be some strains that just produce ugly ass seeds that look like shit. You know what I mean? And if you went on all visuals then you, then you'd also lose out. And I think when you're doing the testing, you know, if you're, if you're able to hone in and save yourself a lot of time, that is worth it. But if, if it's, if you're not, if you're, if it's not, if it's not that critical and you, I think it's still better to kind of go through everything by hand and give everything a chance. Yeah, of course. So I think you, Cause you might be missing out. You might be missing out, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's and that's that's a sentiment I've heard expressed by a few people who I, you know, regard their opinion quite highly. And one of the most memorable mm-hmm. quotes I heard was that, you know, like we're not we're not dealing with tomatoes. It's not like it's so uniform you can just weed out the runts as soon as they appear because a lot of the times the runts are the best ones. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's like literally like sage is a good example. Uh, uh, that was selected off of the oh, well, I have to start my car up because yeah. <laughs> running out of power on my phone. Um, but like Sage was the the selected the original Sage that we selected. Uh, my my friend Mojave uh, had it was just like the smallest plant in the room and it was like kind of in the worst spot, but it had the most amazing smell. And he really like focused on that. Like, okay, well, I'm going to run this one second round. And when he did it the second round, it, you know, it was in a better position and it vegged a little bit better. And it wasn't like, it never was like a, it was never about it being like the biggest plant. It was very vigorous, but it wasn't necessarily the biggest. And then, uh, you know, it turned out to be the winner out of the whole thing. And if he'd gone by that fact that it was the runt of the litter at that point, it would have, you know, never made it to the fruition. Yeah. Great real life example. So Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, there's probably a few people who fall into this category as you, but having had access to arguably some of the best stuff, especially, you know, during the earlier years, a lot of people would kill to have stock from that time. Out of all that stuff, what to you Mm -hmm. has stood out as like some of the best stuff? You know, you probably don't have it anymore, but was there anything you grew back in the day and you just like in your mind, you're like, damn, that was, that was the killer. Yeah, there was, um, actually, sadly enough, it was the, uh, one of the first things I ever grew, uh, when I, when I worked at Sensi, uh, when they did that transition, which was in 91, I believe it was, or around 91, 92. Um, when they did that transition, it was, they, they basically bought, they had all of uh, Neville stuff. They brought that into the, uh, 
they brought that into the mix and I was cleaning out the drawers and I, uh, so I was cleaning out the drawers and then I found this pack and it said, uh, four and more. And most people are familiar with four way, which came out, uh, nineties, uh, which is a four way Indica hybrid. They had come out with a thing called four and more, which is a four way sativa hybrid. And, uh, so I took, uh, that pack and grew them out. And this was like, again, like the first indoor grow that I had under my, like I was growing for them at Sensi, but this is like the first one at my house and every single one of them is mutated, right? Every single one. So it was like they had, um, buds growing on the stems, buds growing in the middle of the leaves, you know, the kind of things that now I, it's, it's no big deal. You see it one you know once in every couple thousand plants but at that time it was like whoa this is crazy um but at the same time i wasn't really recognizing uh the fact that even though it was like a sativa it was growing like pretty much like a pineapple you know small (laughs) had very little stem to it it was all mutated and weird had a weird color to it too it was like a brownie kind of gray color and it was so it wasn't very vibrant um very little hair like had almost no hairs on it so then when i harvested it i just wasn't really thinking i kind of cut it down harvested it hung it up and then when i lit like the first time when i smoked it 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 was like pure haze you know so it was one of those things where i was like the the ultimate right you know where you know grows like a little pineapple indica solid bud has literally buds growing on the stems and the and everywhere so just the vigor on it was amazing and when i started to smoke it i was like holy shit that is like a pure haze taste you know what i mean it was like i kind of remember like looking back at the stump and then smoking the joint and looking back at the stump and being like i probably should have like not cut that down i should have probably kept that plant and i never to this day have ever had anything like that where the combination of the growth pattern and the fact that it had such a extreme sativa like hazy flavor and yet uh and yet uh you know probably would have been the easiest plant to grow in like a sea of green method or something at that time but again you know and and that plant that four and more was that was i think the last pack ever because when i opened up the drawer and found them they were like oh wow i didn't even know we had that like yeah you can take that home with you and i was like sure and i took it home grew it out and Sure enough, never get. And plus, even if you could get a pack of those, I don't think you'll ever get that particular pheno just because of the fact that it's a four-way hybrid. So the fact of knowing which direction it's actually going in is going to be pretty hard. Yeah, wow. It's like the the what? Actually, we say it. The the predecessor golden ticket. Yeah, exactly. Like just like wow, this is like just came out of left field. I just remember that it was such an it was such a contrast of the what I was expecting because when it was growing, it didn't really have a lot of smell. It was kind of like low, low on the totem pole, but it really popped out when you burned it. It was like, wow, ding, like, Whoa, what's that's coming. That's hitting me like so differently than I thought. And so do you think there was any kind of secret to the success of all the gear Neville put out? Like, was it really as simple as just the stock he had to work with? Was that pure? Or do you think he really was like, you know, pretty phenomenal breeder? He was, I mean, the thing is he's a breeder, uh, he, 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 
like a little bit like how Simon was too. Simon from Serious Seed. Simon's a falcon breeder, you know what I mean? And so when you're breeding animals first, you kind of already have that baseline figured out. And then I believe part of it, I think part of it was the fact that he was a junkie, you know, and that he had a real hard head and he really he had to really work for him. So I kind of think that was part of the deal was, you know, like, I'm not, you know, junkie, junkies are driven people, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, they're 100% driven because they continue down that road regard, you know, with nothing's going to stop the mentality. And I think that that may have added to the, that with the combination of the fact that, you know, if you're used to taking heroin, that we'd better be strong, you know, can't be <laughs> no messing around. There's no messing around, you know, if you're a proper junkie. You know, and he was always striving for the best. I mean, he blew himself up making hash oil, you know, way before he, he was the first Botard, you know, like before there was even <laughs> Botards existed <laughs> or one of the first in our industry, you know. So I feel like he just that that driven force and being kind of coming from that side of the of the, of the world is basically making you. Uh, yeah, made him such a good Plus, he like what's interesting, too, is like uh, I met people from everywhere that he had met and it was like it just it was funny how I, every time i meet somebody i can tell he really like he found the best grower you know what i mean he found the best grower in seattle then he found the best grower in california then he found the best grower from wherever you know what i mean he seemed to like have a very good eye for that or a very good nose for that or whatever i'm not sure which senses he do to find these people but you know we, and luckily and now it's a different world so now we've you know we have it's e easier to, to find and to meet these people, whether it be online or in person. But back then, like, so I had friends from Seattle that Neville had come to and traded them for genetics in the late eighties, you know? And so, so then it's like, Oh, okay, well he really went on a mission. You know, he wasn't just waiting for people to bring him material. So he, the dedication of going out to find it. And I'm pretty sure he, he, uh, filtered everything himself and probably passed all his tests. You know what I mean? Like that's, and that's compared to like now where a lot of people, it's all hype and you know, Oh, it's, I need to have that Tahoe cookies. I'm going to get that, you know, going to get the Tahoe cookies because everybody says that's the new hottest thing. You know what I mean? And that's totally different than somehow getting on a plane back in the eighties and, going to Seattle and before there was internet and finding people who connecting with those people, you know, that was, uh, so energy, the energy put in required probably created what is the reason why that came out of it was so good. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, was that Seattle trip? Do you know, is that the infamous Northern lights one? Yeah, that's where he got all his Northern lights from. Exactly. And so, um, because a couple of those people moved to Amsterdam uh, in the early nineties. And part of it was, what was funny was, okay, so one, the one guy that actually uh, got Neville some material and traded with him, he got the original silver pearl from Neville. So it was Northern, it was a NL um, early pearl skunk cross. And so he brought those cuts that he had selected from the seeds he got from Neville. He selected cuts, brought that cut to Amsterdam in 91 and then uh, we were selling it through Katsu as five-way um, because <laughs> NL Skunk being a three-way and uh, early Pearl. Um, so that way, so we were calling it five-way at the time because it didn't have a name. And then uh, 
they bought the collection off of Neville and it was called Silver Pearl. He had come up with a name at that point. And so, yeah, so there was kind of a, like, and then Neville was shocked that we had this, like, how the hell did you get the thing? And then he saw our friend and was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Because <laughs> yeah, it's one of the few people he actually gave to. Yeah. And so, I mean, over the years, you must have seen a million OGs, a million cookie carts, you know, come and go. Mm-hmm. Which of the cuttings out of those two classes specifically which stand out to you? You know, what's your OG that, you know, the one the one you smoke if you've got the choice? Well, you know, I mean, OG or the original one was, was I mean, still to this day, the quintessential of OG for me. Um, but in the uh, after the fact, like the... Um, the, the King's Kush, which was an OG that basically we've renamed to um, Ricky's Brothers Kush, RBK, um, was like uh, was Snoop's favorite back in the day, and Ricky's was Snoop's manager, and I met him in Amsterdam in the '90s, uh, and uh, so when he would come over, when they would come over on tour. Snoop was always pissed off because there was never any Kush, right? He was in Amsterdam. He'd be like, ah, this weed all sucks. And so I was like, well, if you told the manager, if you can get me a cut of whatever he likes, I'll make sure he has it when he's here. So then we managed to get a cut off of his brother, which is funny because the, him and his brother didn't even get along anymore. But he somehow managed to get over to his brother's, get a cut. I, when I came to Cali, he gave me the cut. And I got it back to Amsterdam. And then the first time that I <laughs> – first time that I uh, – uh, had a couple ounces for Snoop. He was in the sh- like he couldn't even wrap his head around the fact that I had the same Kush that he had back in America. You know what I mean? And I figure if, <laughs> if Snoop's seen enough Kush too, so he, if, if that was his favorite, I was like, okay, if that's your favorite, then I will uh, make sure and I'll make sure to have it for you. You know? And then it now has been renamed Snoop's Kush and a bunch of different names, but we still call it RBK because we like the idea of Ricky's brother's Kush. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of Ricky Bobby. It's somewhere between a Ricky Bobby and uh, you know, but that uh, you know I was literally at one point like we should just start a whole trailer park seed company and everything will be a Billy Joe Bob's cousins Kush and Jimmy Joe <laughs> you know whatever because it's because that's kind of where we're at nowadays where a lot of people take Kush. I mean, how many people have taken Kush and put their own name to it or or changed it or whatever? And that's um, but to me, the original Kush, the OGer, which is what I brought back to Amsterdam, was really like the picture perfect one. It's the one. It, I mean, it, it's where MK came from, and it's kind of where I feel like that's that's closest to the source at that point. Yeah, for sure. And so, how do you feel about all the current kind of drama slash, I guess, ethical questioning going on around the idea of breeding with other people's stuff? And I guess specifically. Do you feel like if you've bought a pack of seeds or if you've just obtained them through whatever means, are you just cool to do whatever you want with them at that point, more or less? I mean, yeah, yeah, to a point. I mean, I, I here I am, the guy that sells the seeds. So, of course, you know, it's 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 a double edge for me. I'd rather, I'd rather that people did do that, but then also gave credit because that will help build up the other person's reputation or as a company. Um, when it comes to people buying two packs of this somebody's gear and then crossing those together and selling those as their own, that's a problem. You know what I mean? Um, and, and, and to be quite honest, 
taking a pack of my seeds and a pack of DNA and crossing those together and thinking you have a new seed company or is also a little lame, you know what I mean? And a little like, it's not, not really thinking outside the box. The key, what I've always told everybody over the years is the way to get respect. I think in this industry quickly is to bring something to the table, which is unique. And then you can always collaborate with everybody on that point. You know what I mean? Like, so for instance, you know, sage is what i'm known for so like oh, i feel like if i bring sage into the mix and someone else has something that's special and we take my male of my sage or my female of my sage and we do a cross that's that's me putting my flavor into the into the uh, you know putting it in there um if i take somebody else's thing as a breeder and then i take someone two different other people's it's i can't really do that now it kind of pigeonholes certain people but it also what you notice is the best breeders are guys who like really stick to their guns and like for instance again simon is one of the better breeders out there from serious seeds because he has six varieties you know and he's had the same six he's added like one or two varieties in the last couple of years but for the most part he's had the same varieties for year in and year out are they the same? No. Some of them have changed over the years, but it's very similar to um, if you're breeding, if you're uh, looking at like uh, improvements to the strain. If it's an improvement, then we should do that. But if it's not, I and mean, that's the hard part too, is we're talking about annuals that we have turned into perennials. You know, <laughs> and it's not really like certain plants are not just not pre-read you know they're not designed to last 20 years but somehow we've managed to do that and over the years though the best people or the best breeders are people who realize they have a problem and then they'll fix it you know bring some new blood to the table and and add add some extra vigor into their into whatever they're doing yeah and so if we take a look at kind of the offerings from TH Seeds, there's there's quite mm-hmm. a few which would be, you know, contestants to be kind of the poster child because they're all, you know, such hits in their own right. What do you right. consider to be, you know, the, the the one you stand behind the most, I guess, and, you know, not trying um, to be biased? Still but, sage. I mean, yeah. still sage. Still sage for me because of the fact that I always felt that sativas, and, you know, sativas are a overly used word let's just say narrow leaf drug varieties are are the uh kind of the adult weed you know the adult can the adult cannabis as you as one would say but no the the sophisticated old school smoker the guy who actually um has some more experience than just what people have told him and what dispensary they've gone to those are always those sativa based things that have that like unique cerebral quality to them and then um i feel like things like mk ultra are nice but they're also just they're just a mirror image of a of a kush with with a little bit of a difference and so that that's nice but it's not something that i feel like i'm standing behind 100 percent as my end all i always felt like like a good question i'm sure you've had is always be like well if you were on a desert island and you had one particular plant then then for me it would be sage yeah okay so it's that everyday type of weed yeah and it's a lot of it's due to the fact that like um you know sometimes you won't smoke it for a long time like just you're on this other tip for a while and then you go back to it it's literally like like putting on a glove or something oh wow this i get that instant vibe where it's like why the hell haven't I been smoking this the whole time? <laughs> why haven't I been running around trying to sell this other stuff? And it just has that long-term sort of quality, which I, which I think is uh, rare in a way because everybody's always looking for the next best thing. 
Yeah. So a show everyone, uh, sorry, a question everyone has to answer on the show. What's your favorite mm-hmm. Chem Dog cut? Uh, Chem D. Oh yeah. Yeah, so. I think so. For me, it's the most deep funk, you know. Chem so. ninety one is seems to get a lot of everyone seems to love Chem ninety one too, but that, no, Chem D definitely. Yep. So one. A question I should have probably asked you a bit earlier when we were discussing some of your stuff. The Snowbot, this is a strain mm-hmm. that piques my interest because it, it's so yeah. old. There's not a mm-hmm. ton of information about it. What's the backstory mm-hmm. on it? Well, so I got it from a group in Oregon. They came out to Amsterdam from Oregon. They brought me Snowbud. They brought me um, the predecessors to the Chocolate Chunk, like the, the, the female side of that one. Um, it was... It was just a real unique, um, like the, it was more the shape of it was kind of a lot to do with the, 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 the name behind it because it, it didn't have like a peaked bud, like how, how sours do and stuff. It had really like a rounded, almost like a, there was a plant called Citrol back in Amsterdam that was very similar in its structure. So it had a very wide top to the bud. Um, yeah, just a real, for me, it was a very like, uh, uh, it's hard to say. like the the lingering qualities of it was what I really liked about it. Like it compared to the front end, it was more about the back end on that thing, and super strong. Like just really, we, we we were calling when we first got it, we were like we called we were gonna rename it Dick in the Dirt because it's kind of <laughs> like you just brought you really like got you really really high and really intense. Yeah, wow. And so any plans to work with that going into the future? Um, no, I mean, I, lo- I, I've, I lost all those genetics years ago. Actually, the funny part was that the acorn, which we made it from, uh, where we made from the snowbud, uh, that, that we found we, we found it again. Uh, my partner found it in Mallorca. There was a guy down there who bought seeds from us years ago, and he's just been running with that, particularly like the whole island smokes snowbud we smoke acorn and he's like <laughs> so it was hilarious because he owns a grow shop there so he basically made all the cuts and supplied the island with cuts and uh so we got that back about a year ago oh, nice. so i have but i haven't got it back because it's in europe still but i would love to yeah definitely if i can get the cut back over to this side uh it's one of, it was one of my favorites back in the day for sure and so what's a cut that's maybe not really that widely distributed, but you wish it were, you know, you wish it would appear in more crosses or that the public were more aware of it because, you know, you just think it's awesome. Mm, um, well, there's this plant, there's a thing out here, which I've just kind of started to work with um, and then kind of got off. The, I don't know why. I, I'm actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, maybe I should go back and get on that. But just, oh, I know exactly why. Um, more because of the like, it literally felt like the 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 wind got kind of sucked out of the sails. When I first came to Colorado, um, I was made aware of a strain called Tange out of here, um, the Colorado Tange, and it's like a blackberry flavored, really deep, um, kind of somewhere like a flow. Very like like if you didn't know and you had flow and that one back to back, you might think it's the same plant. But when you grew them out, you kind of you definitely would see the difference. So there was something in the flavor prof- profile that was very much like flow. Um, but it had this, uh, yeah, it was just an intense plant. And 
we were growing that a lot when I first came here and I was also, I made some crosses with it, but it just didn't, but then, then the problem was that the tangy became so popular and I just felt like I can't really promote tang and tangy after all the diesel issues after all these, like, cause it feels like whenever there's confusion on a strain, it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help either or, you know, it's like yeah. you just get people calling tang tangy and people calling tangy tang and mixing it all up. And then all of a sudden it's like, you're, you're kind of like taking each other out, you know what I mean? In, in the wrong way, you know what I mean? And not, not, and not on a quality basis, but just based on, confusion you know so i think we just kind of like it's because i actually had packaging made for tange and then in the end i just like sat on it and and then and then i don't see anybody part the only people that are growing it now is uh derek from incredibles and that's who i got the cut from originally like he's like the last guy standing it seems like <laughs> but but that particular plant was uh one that i had thought when i first came had so much potential and i thought that was going to be the next big thing and in the end it didn't work out and so do you have any other lines that maybe you've done throughout the years which were really good but for whatever reason they never quite made it to market and, you know, maybe looking back you wish they had? Um, you know, I did like a bunch of Cambodian crosses and Laotian crosses at one point. Someone brought me some seeds. Um, the problem was I really felt like there was not, not a big market for those racy land, like those super racy sort of sativas that – didn't grow necessarily pretty plants it's very dark and kind of spotty but now i feel like everybody's more open to the idea of land races and and, and almost like they'd appreciate that difficultness you know like i actually had one recently i was at a show and this one guy came up and it was like the first time i think i've ever heard anybody say it but this guy came up and he's like hey what is the most difficult thing you have to grow you know and this guy was like oh well this one's kind of a difficult plant to grow it was like usually it's never that it's usually i want the easiest biggest <laughs> highest yielding most thc everything you know there's never there's nothing but this guy was asking for because in his mind it was like the most complicated ones were the most rewarding ones which is true you know to a point but it's also hard if you can't get past the point of uh being satisfied how you're growing yeah so just to change topics up for a moment Obviously, besides the ADI, which of mm -hmm. the current cups do you feel you're, you know, kind of most happy to throw your weight behind slash you enjoy going to? Because I think there's only the, two. There's oh, only yeah. two. Well, there's actually three. There's three that I would do, <laughs> and I and they're all like coming up right now. So uh, the Golden Tarp Awards, which is uh, November 18th, so next week, and that one's actually if if uh, I don't know if when you're going to get this posted, but if if you're you should definitely take a look at it and maybe if you get a chance, if, if, if this comes out before and anybody gets a chance to, uh, they're doing a completely transparent online of the entire process. It's a one day thing on the 18th, but they've got a professional system set up like an NFL camera system where they have cameras set up everywhere with the testing, with the, with the judging, with the, the award ceremony, everything is based on multiple camera angles and you can just go for free to your phone and, and like, link into them so they're taking it to the next level as far as transparency but also it's you know uh 250 entries one winner no there's no other it's just one so it's kind of very similar to our idea where it's like not no categories no nothing like that just who's got the best weed you know so, um, like that that one's awesome emerald cups obviously the the the, the sort of 
crowned. I'd say that's that's the best event by far in the world right now when it comes to cannabis, just because of the location, location, location. Right, you're in NorCal, so you're talking about the best of the best when it comes to growers. And then I'll just have to throw some. I'll just have to give my friend my friend props because he's he's taking it to heart. He's he's is uh, in the East Coast and and uh, next week is also another cup called the Cannabis All Stars. And the fact that they are on their fifth year, it's in a tiny little town in Rhode Island, and yet they still have like Method Man and Red Man and big big talent coming through, and they. It's it, the, the quality of the cannabis is good, and also they, it, like Rhode Island actually smokes more cannabis per capita than any state in America right now. So it's kind of like, and I grew up there, so for me it's always funny. Like I'm like, well, I thought I was the only guy. <laughs> I didn't realize anybody here was smoking weed, but apparently everybody is smoking weed there. So it's interesting, you know, you didn't mention any of the high times ones because a lot of the sentiment no. expressed these days is there. It's almost as if the event comes off more as though it's trying to be like a music festival as opposed to like a cannabis event. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Um, well, you know, the thing is I've been involved with the cup since 93. So for me, it's like, I watched it. I watched it from a, from a like organizer point of view in the very beginning. And then from a, uh, and then from a, a punter sort of view. And then from, you know, and just saw how, it was kind of like the same cycles over and over again where people got real excited, they get involved, they get screwed, they move on. Next one, again, they kind of didn't feel like they, I don't feel like they, they, they nurtured their, their people enough and they kind of went for the, went for the kill every time on money. Um, you know, and it's also like I've watched them saturate their market and over, overdo it and do too many cups in too short a time and really burned out a lot of people. Like a lot of people I know, you know, it's, they don't even bother going to them anymore. So, so I, I feel like high times, uh, you know, it, it, they've done a great job over the years of at least keeping the fire going. But the problem was they're now it's, they're turning into what they've been against the whole time, which is the corporate kind of mentality. And, and they've kind of moved on to that. So there's enough, it's good though, because it opens up the, it opens up for a lot of these smaller events to, to shine a little bit when I think there's a, there's a sort of peak point where events just burn themselves out and uh it happens with every trade show it doesn't matter if it's cannabis or not it's just there's always going to be a side project which goes on which is more real you know the, the real people are involved because it's it's uh because they don't want to be involved with the big corporate minded and it happens in fashion and it happens in electronics it doesn't matter there's always going to be another event that comes around and, and absorbs the the energy of that event and that's that's kind of where i think it's at at this point so you know, yeah sorry i was going to say you know obviously being the host of a show i'm sure you get your fair share of criticisms about the show and the you know by oh, yeah. email or whatnot the same way i do you know, the thing I get most notably is like the show's too long and people just get bored halfway through it. Which Yeah, you know, I'm sure. Yeah, I can see the same thing with me because my shows turn out to be two to three hours every time and I can't, but I can't squash enough into that point. It's, I have a hard time where I'm like, well, you know, I can't even, I can't even. Uh, so ultimately but, what you know, I was going to say was. Is, but I, but I, I, I'm like one of those guys where I have a hard time. I mean, I don't have a hard time, but like. I hate when people criticize the stuff I do, obviously. I mean, nobody really enjoys that, but I'm also happy to, to 
take it to to heart sometimes. And you know, it's the same thing. I got guys who say, eh, "Adam, I hate to listen to the Dunn show. That guy can't even get a thought out." You know, and I'm like, "Oh, I thought I was throwing out too much stuff, but I guess I'm not. I guess you know." And and it's you know, and sometimes there's little things where you're like, "Oh, I mean, I remember the first criticism I heard was." And it was funny because I think everybody who um, listens to themselves has their own critique on their own voice or their, their their cadence or how they deliver stuff or whatever. And the very very first one was, I don't know who this I don't know who the hell this Ray Romano sounding guy is, but he's annoying. <laughs> I was like, oh <laughs> great. So now I'm sounding like Ray Romano, and I was like, "Yeah, I kind of get that. I, I kind of see what he's saying." And, you know what I mean? And, then, and again, like I think the, what you can do as a if you're in in this kind of an industry, and the worst thing you can do is get onto YouTube and look at your comments because you're almost always going to have haters in that world. But then again, you know you're not successful unless you have some haters in the world. Yeah. So uh, with all that being said, though. You know, the longevity speaks for itself. What has been, in your opinion, you know, the secret to the longevity overall of both the show and the career, even, you know, even if there are there haters out there? I think just being uh, authentic and, you know, and, and true to yourself in a sense. I mean, that's kind of the key to, su- I feel like that's the key to success now because we're in such a um, uh, sort of insta insta world you know everything's instant and everything um is not authentic anymore there's really like an authenticity lack of authenticity in this world and so when something's good everyone jumps on that bandwagon you know what i mean and i feel like this industry is no not any different i mean we're, we're definitely uh you can run around and be a hype guy and, and jump on everybody else's thing but i feel like if you're just true to yourself and really authentic you're going to last a long time and what's funny is i've been totally uh that's been totally confirmed to me recently i read an article where it was talking about millennials and because the millennials are are always that's they're they're always looking for something that's real now because there's so much fake in the world and that's something we didn't really have as when we were growing up i mean everything was not that everything was real, but it seems like everything was a little bit more authentic because it wasn't like, like now if you get on the internet, it might take you 10 minutes to figure out that you're, what you're reading is absolute and utter bullshit. And you might be totally sucked into it. You know what I mean? But, but this whole idea of, of putting layers of bullshit out there, uh, wasn't so prevalent before, you know what I mean? Before it was a little bit more like, yeah, it was hard to get to the, to find the knowledge, but it wasn't because you had to, click you weren't getting clickbait thrown at you you know what i mean and nowadays it's like the uh, the idea of being 24 years like this is our 25th year coming up now and so when you're into those ranges once you get past 20 years it's kind of like like any career at that point you're like i guess uh, you know <laughs> you, you you uh you either and the thing is it's way easier to be authentic than it is to to try to change all the time because it's kind of like, you know, trying to like if you, you if, imagine you create your entire company based on a lie, then you're, 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 like, take for example, saying you started in 1985. You know, how can you? <laughs> you know, you can't really. What do you do when you have your 20th anniversary and you have only but but you're, everyone starts questioning like, well, how could you be 20th anniversary? You just started four years ago. You know, you know what I mean? It's like to me that's like it makes it harder as a as a 
to be in the industry long term, you know, because you're always now you now you're you're always defending yourself, you know. So I feel like just being authentic and just sort of you know real and and one of the things that's nice is that uh, I'm glad I'm where I'm at at the age that I'm at because I'll be I'm like 48 right now. Um, I, I think it would be too hard to become in here as a total new new guy and try to create an image and, and your own thing. I think it'd be quite hard. So I'm kind of glad where I started when I started because uh, it's not so hard to to last if you've been around that long, you know, because <laughs> it just gets easier in a sense. Yeah, yeah, you got that name recognition as well. So, I mean, we're on the on the tail end of it all now. This is the last question. It's a little bit more, I yeah. mean, you can, you can go long if you want, but a little bit more yeah. short answer based. Um, yeah. So... This one actually might require a little bit of explaining, but I saw you answer a question somewhere. I think it might have been in the Facebook group, somewhere like that. But basically, someone said, how come we don't see a lot of 100% hemp clothing? And then you said, oh, it's because it's actually like quite hard to make 100% versus, say, like a blend. Would you mind elaborating mm-hmm. a bit more about that? I don't think people are familiar. Sure. Uh, well, it's mostly cost-restrictive, you know. Like, uh, say, you can make 100% hemp products and I, and we've, we've sold them over the years. Um, the problem was it was always a uh, combination of cost restrictive. And also I don't think people are as familiar with that high, that high of quality material to begin with, because one of the things it takes, so for instance, linen is a good example. Like linen is not fashionable right now. Uh, it's not because it takes energy to actually wear it. You can't wash and wear linen. You know what I mean? You have to actually take care of it little bit like cast iron skillets take a cast iron skillet compared to a teflon pan they probably sell 100,000 teflon pans for every cast iron skillet these days but if you're a chef you're only going to wear you're only going to use cast iron skillets because that's what real cooking's about but it's also going to last forever um it needs to be treated constantly um and so with with hemp clothes with hemp when it's 100 percent, it's not going to be wrinkle free you're going to have to uh iron it every time whereas when we mix it with cotton we can actually get pretty much wrinkle-free material um hardly needs any any maintenance and people are more used to that and the problem is if you if you hand somebody an item which you just paid more money for it and now you have to take care of it more it's almost like it's so against the grain of the the, the modern way of thinking now everybody's well if you, if you pay more it should just take care of itself right and you're like no, actually not so so it's kind of like one of those things where just people aren't really ready to to pay the amount that they'd have to pay. And then on top of that, learn a whole new learning curve of how to take care of their clothing, um, which, you know, it's, it's funny as a, as a, to be in this industry for so long and then like never would have thought that I would have ever been into fashion and into clothing. And, and the nice part is that because we're a hemp brand, we're really focused on what we do. And so like our materials over the years have like now we're doing 70 77% hemp on the outer material of our jacket so we've actually increased it as much as we can and keeping it in line with what we've already done if you know what i mean yeah i, I know that's your tagline but i'm just going <laughs> to throw it at you <laughs> we got to keep it in there so i mean if we take a step back though what was in- kind of the inspiration to initially start the clothing brand in general it obviously predates a lot of the other currently popular clothing brands like oh, yeah. cookies and all that. Sure. We literally um, started selling hemp clothing in 1993 
after I quit working for so I was working when I was working at Sensi, we used to sell a a shirt that was called Stonedware. And probably people who some of the people who listen to this probably had one of these. It was like the original hemp jean shirt, right? Long sleeve jean shirt thing. Uh, and it was like had a really cool patch and it had really cool buttons. It was quite thin the material. It wasn't really like super robust, but it was the only hemp product that that we sold. And so we sold tons and tons of these shirts. And then when I started so then when I left Sensi Part of the reason I left is because I was really into the idea of selling hemp, and they didn't really have the inspiration that I was seeing to get more hemp products, and and, the, and there wasn't really a lot available at that time. So then when I so then I left there, and literally Ben Drunkers like got me you know, kind of came got me over by the doorway and was like, hey, you know, good luck with everything, and you know hope you can find that hemp, you know, and it was like, he had just started hemp flax at the time. So he was about to start growing hemp because of his frustrations of that. There wasn't enough hemp around, you know? And so, uh, in the beginning, I just sold other people's hemp clothing. And it was like, I was getting some pretty wonky stuff. And it was like, I was forcing myself to wear some of the gear just because I was trying to promote it. You know, I had like overalls that were too short in the legs and kind of goofy and just weird 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 stuff that i wasn't really thinking was like fashionable and and then we um was working with a company called thc that had some italian hemp that was beautiful like italian processed hemp products that were amazing and they had 100 percent but the problem was again they're there so the quality was there everything but the prices were just outrageous they were over 100 bucks for a pair of jeans and this is back in the 90s so i was like oh my god a hundred dollars you know and i was like well this is the way and you know a hundred dollars is 200 guilders so it was like we we're trying to charge 200 guilders for a pair of jeans and people were just like you know couldn't, couldn't get their head around it so then we started making our own products and but uh you know we imported all the material from china and the hundred percent hemp was always very rough and very burlappy and not conducive to making good quality clothes. So we actually did a, we actually had a bunch of hundred percent stuff made and it was like, looked more like the Flintstones, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like as far as just the, the threads coming out, the thickness of the thread and stuff. Um, but now we could do hundred percent and we might get the price to a point where people might be willing to pay for it. But, um, we still feel like the blends are, are, you know, an easier way to, to get people interested without them. Cause a lot, the, the worst thing is to have somebody buy something. And then to me, like the most un eco thing is when you buy a, a, a some clothing and you don't wear it because one, for one reason or another like you open up your if you open up your 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 closet and there's a bunch of hemp gear in there that you never wear well you're not really helping out anybody are you you know but if you have something that you wear until it's fallen off your body because they've wearing it so much then that to me is the most eco minded so even in the beginning like when people would be like yeah but your dye's not eco and it was like we tried that. We, we actually worked with some eco dyes and they, they ruined all the other clothes that people would have. So they would never want to buy your clothes again because they bought that shirt off of you. They put it in the laundry with all their other stuff. Cause that's what they do. Even though you put on the label, wash separately, they don't listen. You know what I mean? People, people just don't listen. People are, yeah. people take it, they throw it in the thing, they treat it like everything else. And if it doesn't work, they'll never do it again. And so that, that, that to me is a, the kind of, you know, the, the, the stickling point, a stickling point between doing 100% hemp and doing a blended blends of hemp. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So, mm -hmm. 
what is your preferred grow style, synthetic or organic, and why? Um, oh, 100% organic. Um, you know, I, I, I was a victim of every single over-teched way of growing. When I first moved to Holland, it was all about hydro. I was in the land of hydro. I wanted to build, I didn't even want to have soil. I wanted, I didn't even want to have medium. I just wanted to do aeroponics. I was, um, uh, general hydroponics, uh, distributor between 95 and 97. So I was like introducing general hydro to everybody. Uh, I was totally all about it. You know, I was like, uh, and then at a certain point I remember just like throwing all that shit away and going back to soil and realizing like, Oh my God, this is so much better for, for just all around flavors, making seeds. I would never make seeds on hydro. It's always on soil, you know? So it's just the mineral contents a lot. I just feel like the connection between the minerals that you get from the soil compared to what you get from salts is so much different, like just vibe wise. And then, um, when you're making seeds, you know, you really, there's a lot of, there's really no formula on the market that's made for making seeds. It's always, you know, you're growing or you're flowering and that's it. And there's different, you know, pregnant women don't need the same food as non-pregnant women, you know, because their bodies are going through changes and the baby needs something different than the mother needs. And it's the same when you're making seeds, you know? So I feel like when you grow us organically, there's going to be a completely different shift the way the plant needs, but it's all available because you just, you give them everything they need compared to like trying to you know and over the years i've thought oh maybe i should make like a synthetic food for making seeds that'd be cool but i also think some things you can't fix you know or you can't make better than than nature so um and ever since doing my show i'm now more now no tills come into my world and that's so much more satisfying and the inputs that go involved you know and also i have like a, a farm here in colorado so i'm living in the middle of nature. So the last thing I want to do is grow synthetically and, uh, and not be able to utilize everything that I'm doing. And what I'll do is, you know, use uh, raised beds for all the old soil and stuff and recycle everything properly. It's just, it's a much better feeling. And I, I, I only eat organic food now and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much, you know, I'm over, <laughs> I'm over all the idea of, 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 uh, of synthetics. Yeah. Almost yeah, completely, yeah. you know, so, yeah. a bit of an interesting question. What is your least favorite strain throughout all of history that you've sadly had the pleasure of trying? Um, yeah, you know, to be quite honest, one of the ones was uh, Soma's fucking diesel was because it, it tastes terrible. Like, it has, like, the... It has... And it got such a big amount of hype in Holland. It was the... the the hot ticket item you know what i mean and it was just like it never delivered like it smells really good it looks really good it tastes terrible and it just doesn't get me high you know what i mean so that was one of those strains that it just took me it it, it always it, it just it it was like a huge disappointment like if anybody ever says like so like oh dude I got, oh look i got diesel and i'd be like sour no so much and i was like so i think that was one of the ones and i wouldn't say it's the worst variety but it was the least sad it was the the one that bummed me out just every time like bums me out yeah and what about your favorite of all time favorite of all time is nothing that any of us have ever grown it was a tie it's a 1985 
pur- purple tie that kind of flooded the East Coast for a little while, and I actually met the, one of the main guys who brought it in at one point where I was, we were talking about, you know, back in the day and old times and stuff, and I was explaining, and he's like, oh, that those are the loads I brought into Rhode, into Rhode Island, and I was like, oh, those were amazing. It was just like this super slow-burning purple tie thing that was like tiny little buds and just amazing and yeah you just don't see because you know and it probably wasn't from thailand i'm sure it was from it was probably laotian or something but for the most part it was uh um you know most memorable thing that i've ever had yeah wow okay so lucky last question if you could go back to one place in history and geography to collect landrace seeds where would you go Mm -hmm. and from what time period um, probably in the same region, like in La- Laos. Um, basically, every Vietnam vet out there always has the best weed. That's always been the case. Like, in, it seems like in America, like, wow, this weed's amazing. Where'd you get it from? Oh, this is Vietnam vet. And, and they always. And the thing is that everybody there would always tell me that the, the Laotian weed was psychedelic. You know. I mean, and, and these are people who took a lot of psychedelics, so they wouldn't they wouldn't say it, not understanding it, you know. Um, and I feel like that that would be probably some of the more unique things out there because it's such a hard plant to grow too. So it's like a lot of hermaphrodites, a lot of issues like that. So so I think, um, but it still it would be great to find something out of there that was super electric. Also, that Kawhi Electric was one of those ones I wish I could get my hands on. And that's something that I've heard over the years from friends, which just sounds so amazing. But I, I actually went on a hunt for it around 2005. But I met people who grew it, and I met people who knew the guys who would go to the power lines and collect it, and et cetera. But it, but I never got a chance to actually try it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I guess we can only hope it pops its head up again. With that being said, any shout-outs or comments you wanted to make? Um, well, you know, um, shout out to the chat gang out there. If they're listening to, hopefully they're listening to your show, your show. And I will focus to make sure that they do. So shout out to Buck Russell and all the guys who made, made the, who made the, uh, chat gang a real thing, which it's been quite, it's quite cool to have a dedicated crew like that. You know, I'm sure you got your own, you must have your own dedicated listeners. I'm I'm a part of chat gang. Oh, cool. Basically shouting you out. Thanking you. Um, you know, obviously shout out to my beautiful wife <laughs> as I end every show and my little kid and my, my mom and the whole crew is just hanging in there with me because it's been a struggle. You know, it's one of those things over the years of doing this. Um, you really, you realize that, you know, not everybody has the same vision that you have, but if they hang in there with you and then stay to the end, then they might, uh, get to enjoy all the things that we're we're trying to make out of this and and right now it's just trying to find our way with this plant and make it uh you know benefit everybody in the long run and not get not get eaten up which you know it is it is in a way but at the same time i feel like there'll always be a piece of it that'll shine through yeah what a great sentiment to end the show on so thanks again so much for coming on the show hey thank you man it's been awesome So there we have it, guys. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did. Big thank you again to Adam 
A big thank you to our Patreon gang. These guys are seriously, collectively, MVP. My favourite crew of people ever. And as always, 420 Australia. And OGS. And all you guys. And me. I'll see you.